When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, Unshaken Saints, and welcome back. I'm Jared Halverson, grateful to be with you. In fact, spending time with you in Scripture is one of the highlights of my week. Now, technically, that has not yet begun for me, but it has begun for you since we're now together. Uh, technically, I'm all by myself in, a, in, in my wife's little home office, uh, and so technically you're not here yet, and, and that's what makes this hard for me. Honestly, my wife laughs at this, that I dread filming every week because when a camera and my brain are in the same room, only one will work at a time. And so there's takes and there's retakes and sometimes there's, there's audio issues. There's been times where I filmed for four hours and then I went to go start video editing and the sound didn't work. And so I had to do the whole thing over again. This is the hardest part for me. But knowing that you're on the other side and that once you start tuning in, then we are together, then it makes it all worth it. And you are such a blessing to me. I pray that these lessons are a blessing to you. And so, though you're not with me yet on my end, I'm grateful to be with you now on your end. So whether you're sitting at home watching, whether you're listening to this on a, on a ride or on a run, on a hike for some of you, on a long haul trucking drive, for some of you, uh, I'm getting to know you and getting to know your stories and beginning to understand what, what you're up to while, while we study together. And, and I just want to express my love and gratitude to each of you for spending time in the Word of God and allowing me to tag along for, for your ride. So by the time we get together, uh, thank you for joining me and allowing the Spirit to, to connect us over time and space. In fact, one of you connected with me this past week. I'm barely ahead. I'm, I'm like, I film and then post like the next day if I have enough time to video edit and then it's there. Uh, and so I'm not ahead at all. And that's kind of scary because deadline, weekly deadlines are always pressing. But the nice thing about it lately is I've been able to get instantaneous feedback on last week's lesson before I film this week's lesson and post it. And one of you, for example, had, had mentioned, I, I, we need more JST. And I was so grateful. That came a little bit late. I was grateful that I had spent that extra time last week on the JST of Luke chapter 3 and the Savior's Ten Commandments. If you didn't get a chance to watch that part last week, that is one of the most important Joseph Smith translation additions you'll find in Scripture, at least in the New Testament particularly. Uh, well, it happened again this week, and one of you was kind enough to reach out and say, hey, love the lesson last week on the temptations of Christ, but you ought to check out the Brothers Karamazov from Dostoevsky. Because there is, uh, Dostoevsky's take on the, on the temptations of Christ is fascinating. And as soon as he said it, I thought, ah, duh. I read The Brothers Karamazov, but it's been too long and I had totally spaced it. And so just brief by way of review for last week and introduction to this week, can I tell you just briefly what Dostoevsky was teaching us in The Brothers Karamazov in a story within the story called The Grand Inquisitor. 
The Grand Inquisitor is this story, a skeptic is trying to approach one of his other brothers. The skeptical brother is talking to the religious brother, trying to tear down his faith. Uh, no wonder I love that book, right, as one who studies faith crisis. But what, what he, he tells this story about the Grand Inquisitor. And in it, Jesus comes back to earth, but happens to appear in Spain during the Spanish Inquisition. And as you might expect, he ends up getting arrested. And in prison, he is questioned by the Grand Inquisitor, who eventually tells him, you know what, the church would be better off without you. Uh, Chris, this is kind of Christendom without Christianity. So please leave uh, because we've got things under control now and we can actually do our job a little bit better if we do it our way. Which ends up being a lot like Satan's way as described in the temptations of Christ. So remember last week when we studied Matthew 4 and, and some of the others in, in the other synoptics that these three temptations were changed stones to bread, leap from the temple, and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. And we talked about that as a, a temptation toward the, a physical appetite, lust of the flesh, a temptation toward pride, and a temptation toward worldliness and materialism. And it's all of that, but it's more. And one of the things that the Grand Inquisitor says to Jesus uh, while he's imprisoned is, you should have succumbed to those temptations. Because in a way, by doing so, you would have left the people better off, at least in the, in the long run. Uh, in fact, that's kind of what we've been doing ever since. And I'm not, I don't want to try to, to condemn uh, historical Christianity, whether that's Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy, which was Dostoevsky's religion, uh, or Protestantism, or even cultural, the cultural aspects of being a Latter-day Saint, uh, because we all have things to repent of and things to work on. We all have temptations to overcome, uh, namely those, those three types. But what, what this Grand Inquisitor story explains that is so fascinating and so relevant, tragically, is what the Grand Inquisitor was trying to get across to Jesus was, if you just changed stones to bread, you would have, have, so, you would have had something to give to the people. I mean, in a way, isn't that what you did when you multiplied the loaves and the fishes? Well, when we get to those stories, I'm going beyond the Grand Inquisitor right now, but when we get to those stories, we'll see why Jesus did it then and why he didn't do it very often. We have the uh, multiplying for the 5,000 and the 4,000, and that's it. And by the time we get to John chapter 6, we'll see why Jesus doesn't keep doing that. But the Grand Inquisitor was, you should do that all the time. Change stones to bread. Uh, bread and circuses is what the Romans would do, right? Uh, let's keep the populace happy. And as long as there's a chicken in every pot, which is what the, the politicians always promise, then the people will vote for you. The people will follow. So change stones to bread and provide for the people's needs. The second temptation, yes, leap from the temple. And we did hint at this last week. Leap from the temple and the world will know that you're the Messiah. Uh, easy, easy acknowledgement of your true identity. Uh, what's, what's better than that? Uh, prove, to, prove to them, that's the real issue here, prove to them that you're the Messiah and they will come running. Give them what they want temporally. They'll, they'll be beholden to you. They'll keep coming back for more treats. Uh, prove to them that you're the Messiah and intellectually they'll be beholden to you because they know it's obvious. And then third, accept the rule of the kingdoms of the world. And that way you can rule over your subjects. 
You'll be the, the ultimate king of kings in that way. And in, and in that way, you can make sure that they obey your every command. After all, isn't obedience important to you? It's interesting. It's so sinister what Satan is suggesting here. But to think about if you'll, if you'll give them what they want, if you'll prove to them that this is all true, and if you'll control their decisions in such a way that they can't make wrong ones, then you win. But don't they win too? And in a way, here's what Christendom is trying to do, of give people the easy things, give them proof, and then don't let them choose. Sound a little like Satan's plan in premortality, by the way? No agency, guaranteed salvation, absolute assurance that this is the way because there's no other ways to choose from. Fascinating. That goes even beyond anything that Dostoevsky himself knew at the time. But let's think of it in these terms. If Jesus had gone the way of the Grand Inquisitor, there would have been no want, no doubt, and no sin. And that does sound pretty positive. No want? Oh yeah, show me a rock and I'll give you a piece of bread. No doubt? It's absolutely obvious Jesus is the Messiah. The angels came and swooped down and, and bore him up. And there's no sin, because Jesus can control our every decision. He's ruling every kingdom of the world. Well, that's the problem. God does want to meet our needs, and he does want to help us overcome our doubt. And he does want to eliminate sin, but not Satan's way. Not the Grand Inquisitor's way. He wants to do it the Father's way. Because if there's no want, then there's no work. And if there's no doubt, then there's no faith. And if there's no sin, it's because there's no choice, no agency. And the need to work and to wait and to try and to strive is part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The need to exercise real faith in the face of doubt, in the absence of proof, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to exercise our own agency, even imperfect and even imperfectly at times. That's part of the plan as well, so that we can learn from those mistakes. The day will come where there is no want and no doubt and no sin. But it will be because we have chosen it, not because it's been forced upon us. So take that, Grand Inquisitor. Take that, Satan. Like we said last week, all those things that Satan is offering are things that will come our way in the right way and in the right time if we follow Christ. So thank you, Christ, for resisting the, those temptations. Thank you, Church of Jesus Christ, for striving to resist those temptations as well. And may we, in our own individual way, resist them and exercise work and exercise faith and exercise agency in such a way that will bless us eternally. And to my friend who reminded me of the Brothers Karamazov, thank you for that. Now, this week, John 2, 3, and 4. Okay, We're leaving the synoptics behind. We spent our time with them last week. This week will be only in the, in the book of John, and these are stories that are unique to him. And they're incredible. If you're a fan of The Chosen, 
and I'm a huge fan of The Chosen. When it first came out and I started watching, I turned to my kids and I said, this is why television was invented. Uh, it's amazing, especially how, how well it brings to life Jesus. I will always love the church's Bible videos because they are so true to the text as far as the King James Version of the Bible is concerned. And I love the text, as, you have, as hopefully you know by now. And so to see exactly what's on the page portrayed, that's the gift that the church is giving the world through the, the Bible videos. But to infuse it with some more modern relevance, to, to exercise a little extra poetic license without doing disservice or damage to the text, but trying to fill in blanks as, whenever possible, I think The Chosen does as good a job of that as anything I've ever seen. And it's interesting that three of my favorite episodes, I've loved them all so far, but three of my favorite episodes are the marriage at Cana, where Jesus turns the water to wine, just to see him. I, I, hope, I hope you watch these episodes uh, this week as part of your Come Follow Me. Show them to your children, uh, study them in the scriptures, and then watch and see where the poetic license is taken and how, how they're infusing some, some added life to the text. But to see Jesus change the water to wine, to see the reaction of the disciples, to see the concern of Mother Mary, it's a beautiful thing. And that's John chapter 2. Another favorite episode is when Jesus speaks to Nicodemus at night. And the conversation that those two men have, oh, I love the portrayal of Nicodemus in The Chosen. And to see his life play out Oh, he's, a, he's a starring figure in, in what we'll see today. But then occasionally he pops up later. And so we need to come to know him. And that's what John chapter 3 is all about. And then one of my all-time favorite scenes in The Chosen is when Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman at the well. And that's John chapter 4, the, uh, the third chapter we'll study today. And to see her flippancy in the face of Jesus is portrayed so well. I could picture that being the case, but when what you read, the challenge of text is there's no emojis. You can't tell tone. You see their words, but how are they saying it? Was this in anger? Was this in sorrow? Was it fast? Was it slow? All the things that a, that a director or a screenwriter would have to figure out. Well, John's our screenwriter here, but to see the director say, no, 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 say that angrily. Say this flippantly. Ah, to, to watch that story unfold in that, it, it's a beautiful, magnificent scene, especially once this Samaritan woman knows she is fully seen by the Savior. It's beautiful. And we'll get a chance today to study those textually in John chapter 2 and 3 and 4. These are masterpiece chapters. So first, welcome to the wedding. John chapter 2, the last thing we saw in John chapter 1 was Jesus speaking with Nathanael. Remember when he said to him, uh, before, you know, can any good thing come of Nazareth? And then it's, well, before, how's this for a good thing? Before I saw you, before you came, I saw you under the fig tree and I called you. You came. Thanks, Philip, for your help. And that's when Nathanael is blown away thinking, how is this even possible? And Jesus is like, you thought, you thought that was a big deal? You ain't seen nothing yet. And sure enough, turn the page, and in John chapter 2, you're going to see something even bigger. And it's the, the turning of water into wine at this marriage. Now, the marriage we know so little about. 
And that's why in The Chosen they had to you know, invent some other characters and draw some, some relationships uh, to explain why Mary would be there and why Jesus would be there and why his disciples would be there and, and why it was such a concern that they were running out of wine. All we get in the text is this, John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And that's it. There is so little detail. Who's getting married? I don't know. Why is Mary there? I don't know. Why is Jesus and the disciples? I don't know. Quit asking questions. Actually, don't. Keep asking them. As many as you can think of. Because they will often lead to incredible insight. So why are they there? The third day, even scholars have scratched their head going, third day of what? Third day after what we just saw in John chapter 1? That's quick to get up there. Um, what? Joseph Smith, actually, in the JST, does clarify somewhat and simply says the third day of the week. Oh, okay. So uh, we've got a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday is what we're seeing here. Well, does that mean anything? I don't know. But on this third day, there was a marriage. Now, it does pause there for just a minute. This is John writing. And John, with his high Christology, is trying to introduce people who already think they know the life of Christ to introduce them to the true glory of Jesus. Uh, what, what has he come to accomplish? So much of this is trying to move us forward and, and anticipate and foreshadow what we're going to see in the, the highest Christological moments of Christ's ministry, namely his, his suffering in Gethsemane, his crucifixion on the cross, his, his resurrection from an empty tomb. That those are the, the moments John really wants to get us to. And so think about what he might be hinting at, foreshadowing, with talk of a marriage and talk of a third day. I mean, the John who wrote the book of Revelation was steeped in symbolism and wanted you to see past the symbol to the kinds of dramatic realities he was, he was prophesying of and trying to convey. And so to think of John here, is he thinking symbolically also? We're going to see a lot of symbolism in the chapters that we see uh, to this week, and we're going to see people that, are, that trip up over only taking them on a literal level. And so I wonder, is John hoping that we'll see beyond the, the literal of, yes, there's a literal marriage going on, and yes, literally it happened on a third day. But think about marriage. Think about the parable of the ten virgins, for example, and the parable of the marriage feast of the Lamb, the parable of the, of the marriage of the king's son. Uh, to the, in the book of Revelation, as it talks about the second coming being a marriage between the Lamb and his bride, which is the church. Ah, a marriage here. Okay, are we invited? It does say that Jesus was called and his disciples as well to the marriage. Hmm, interesting. Okay, are we invited? Are we coming? Are we dressed in our white raiment? Do, are, are we, do we have our wedding garment on? And are we prepared for the marriage feast of the Lamb? And then the third day. That one should be obvious to we Christians. And to think of the third day as a symbol of the resurrection, that Christ is coming, he's returning, even when we thought it was too late for that to ever occur. 
Are we supposed to be thinking symbolically of the second coming here? Perhaps. But keep reading, verse 3 through 5, when they wanted wine, and that could be wanting as in desiring, or wanting as it's lacking, and we don't have any. When they wanted wine, well, they're probably wanting in the second way because they had been wanting in the first way too much. Okay, the, the wine's gone. When they were wanting wine, the, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, they have no wine. And it's interesting that that's all that she, sa- all that she says. It's a, there's a period right there. There's no petition, probably because there doesn't need to be one. All she does is explain the situation and then leaves it up to Jesus to decide what to do. Now, what Jesus says in response is, woman, which sadly, we take it in our vernacular, our approach, and think of this as being some kind of disrespectful term. Like, woman, why are you going? No, this is not Jesus at all, especially to his dear mother. Think about, oh, medieval royalty, and what would you say to the queen or the, or the princess? You'd probably say something like, milady. And here, similar term of respect that Jesus gives his mother, milady. And then his question, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Now that also sounds a little, oh, flippant, or, what, what, woman, what am I supposed to do here? What do I have to do with you? Yeah, yikes, that is not Jesus at all. So other translations do a better job of this. The New International Version, Woman, why do you involve me? Or the New Living Translation, Dear woman, that's better, that's not our problem. Or the English Standard Version, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My favorite is actually the Joseph Smith Translation, which gives us by revelation, Woman, what wilt thou have me to do for thee? That will I do, for mine hour is not yet come. And his mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Now think about this conversation as it goes back and forth. So much is unsaid, and again, maybe that's why we need a good director uh, to, to flesh out some of the details. But for Jesus to say, okay, I thank you for pointing out the situation. What would you want me to do? Now, in the, the way we see it in the King James and most other translations, it's my hour is not yet come. And, and there's this sense of I'm not going to out myself. This is kind of the messianic secret we get in the book of Mark that I'm doing miracles, but don't tell anybody. Because my time is not yet come. And once the Romans get a hold of this, once the Jewish leadership realizes who I really am, then my time will come and perhaps faster than I want it to. And so... I don't know, is it too early? Am I jumping the gun? Is it premature for me to show this kind of power by performing this particular miracle? That's a possibility. It's the one the Chosen runs with. But I love what Joseph Smith gives us, where, you know, Mother, my time is not yet come. And when it is fully come, I probably won't have time to do things like this for you. But since my time is not yet come, my sweet mother, how can I be of service? That, that is the Jesus I know and love. But again, what's interesting is Mary doesn't say a thing. Now, there's a contrary here. There's a fine balance. On the one hand, we need to express to the Lord our, not only our situation, but our needs, our hopes, our desires. We plead with him, that we counsel with him in all our, in all our doings. But I think sometimes we take that too far 
and we give God our to-do list, well, his to-do list, and these are the things you need to do for me. Uh, and so in that light, it would be Mary saying, uh, Jesus, they're out of wine, and I need you to do this, and here's the recipe, and here's how much we need, and, and so forth. That's, again, making demands of God, and that's not our place. And so swing the pendulum back into middle ground and prove a contrary here and realize that part of our faith is being submissive to the will of God, expressing our circumstances, which he already is aware of, but humbly admitting, I'm, I'm wanting something in terms of I'm lacking something. There's a gift I don't have and I need it for this particular calling. Or I... The blessings you've promised me, now would be a wonderful time. There's faith there, but part of the submission that goes with faith is simply letting God know where we stand and leaving the details with him. I don't know how you want to deal with my circumstance. I'll accept whatever you choose. And the way Mary responds, even if Jesus is, is asking for more detail, well, what would you have me do, dear mother? And I'll do it because I have time for you. I always will. Instead, Mary then simply turns to the servants and, say, and says, whatever he says, do it. What? <laughs> Mother, you haven't told... That's okay. Thank you, Mom. And thank you, servants, for being willing to obey what you don't even know I have in mind. Mother Mary doesn't know either. But let's see how this unfolds. There's something, again, beautifully submissive and beautifully faithful about Mary's approach and something incredibly humble and meek and willing to serve on the part of Jesus. Verse 6 through 8, then, here's what Jesus says to the, to the servants. Now, there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. And Jesus saith unto them, these servants, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. I mean, they kept this commandment as well as they possibly could, up to the very tippy-tippy top. And he saith unto them, draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. Now, there might have been a very pregnant pause between the period after feast and the capital A of and. But you, you, you want us to do what? All we've done so far is filled these water pots to the brim, these water pots, and we filled them with water. And now you want us to take this water to the governor of the feast? Are you serious? Uh, he's the most important one here. Well, I would say the, the, the bride, and then I'd say the groom, and then probably the family. But if he's the governor of the feast, oh, how's he going to react when we give him water when he's expecting wine? Has it changed yet? Uh, well, we always talk about this as the changing the water into wine. Has it, but has it occurred yet? Or are these servants looking down at clear liquid and the cups as they're bringing it, it to the, the governor of the feast and scared to death of what his reaction will be? Did it change in route? Did it change as the governor of the feast took the, the cup? Did it change as he began to drink it? Did it just, was it his perception that the Lord altered? And it was water, but for, to him it tasted like wine, and to everyone else as well. I don't know. I don't know the details of this miracle. 
But what a miracle that the servants had the faith to move forward. Since faith precedes the miracle. Since you receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. Since you have to step into the darkness, trusting the light will then follow. And that's exactly what these wonderful unnamed servants did. Now let's deal with numbers for a moment. On the one hand, there's a, perhaps a symbolic number, since there were six water pots of stone. Stone, by the way, uh, is an important detail, since stone cannot be made impure. According to the book of Leviticus in several places, if there's anything that's been contaminated, and remember Leviticus is the priesthood handbook of instructions for ancient Israel, and there's all kinds of things about what are the kosher laws, and how do you do this, and how do you make the sacrifices, and what constitutes ritual impurity, and how do you purify people? Well, if it's stone, just wash it. If it's wood, you can wash it. If it's clay, if it's some kind of vessel that, that's been shaped and then burned in the kiln, then that has to be shattered and broken. Uh, kind of dust to dust, so to speak. Because that can be made unclean. Uh, here we are made of the dust, and sadly we become ritually impure all the time. And so to have our hearts broken and ground back down to powder and reinfused with living water so that the powder can shape them again, that's what you're going to have to do with clay pots. But stone? If Jesus was a stonemason more than a carpenter, here's stone that cannot be made impure. I mean, it says it right there, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews. Interesting, by the way, that John would bring that up. If he's writing strictly to a Jewish audience the way Matthew was, he wouldn't have needed that detail. Matthew tends to leave those things out. Luke brings them up every chance he gets because he knows his Gentile audience is going to need it. But for John's audience, most likely mixed multitudes of church members, both Jewish background and Gentile background, well, just to be safe, let's make sure you know that stone is here for the purifying of the Jews. But six water pots, now seven is the great symbolic number of completeness and totality and perfection. Six, ooh, we're almost there. And six can be a number for anticipation and we're almost to the seven, or it can be the almost opposite of just what you've fallen short. Uh, the 666, for example, is a negative sign because you're not quite 777. But if it's a six of anticipation and we're so close to the third day and the marriage feast, oh, the sixth seal, uh, coming to its fulfillment, and the seventh millennial seal, there's the marriage of the Lamb. Uh, talk about the governor of the feast. He's coming. And what are we offering him? Are we offering him our purest water? Are we filling ourselves with living water up to the very brim? Submissive with faith that God can change us into something far better. In fact, something far more sacramental, since wine is so richly symbolic as well. It will come through the blood of Christ as he who is the living water sheds his own blood from every pore. He who, who wants to reach deep into these living waters, these wells, we'll see that in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well, but will replace them with the wine of the sacrament. 
what Jesus is trying to make us into as part of this marriage. He is trying to make the wife worthy, the, 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 the bride worthy of the bridegroom. So offer him whatever water you've got. And then wait and watch that water turn to wine. It will through the Savior's power. And then the other more literal number here, two or three firkins apiece. A firkin, since we don't use those anymore, I, I can barely get my teaspoons and tablespoons uh, <laughs> straight, and I can't, can never seem to convert liters or gallons or quarts or whatever it is. But what's a firkin? A firkin's about nine gallons. And so if each of these six stone pots is between two and three firkins, then each one, it's kind of a mixed multitude, okay? Some people have greater carrying capacity than others, and that's okay. God will use every vessel he can. You remember Elisha and this woman that is running out of money, can't pay her debts, and they're going to sell off her son to the, to the debt collector. And Jesus says, gather every vessel you can, every pot from all your neighbors, and I will pour out oil until they are all filled to the brim. So it doesn't matter if you are a three firkin water pot or only a two firkin. You could be a teaspoon for all the Lord, for all the Lord cares, but offer it and fill it to the brim with all that you can and give it to him and watch what he does with it. How's that for multiplying loaves and fishes? How's that for multiplying meal or oil? How's that for changing water to wine? And how much? An incredible amount. Each one, somewhere between 18 to 27 gallons, Six pots worth, if you take the average, then would somewhere be between 108 and 162 gallons. Let's round this off and make it 150 gallons just to make the math easy. And if that's 150 gallons worth of water that the Lord is going to change in an instant, talk about power. In fact, if you were to pick, visualize this, imagine a fish tank or an aquarium that is five feet long and two feet high and two feet deep and that is 20 cubic feet of water which is roughly 150 gallons and imagine turning all of that i guess these people really were wanting wine and the lord changed it keep reading though and in verse 9 and 10 the, the drama is, is now about to unfold. You can picture just how nervous, scared the servants are, depending on when or if the water has changed to wine yet. And they're tremblingly handing the goblet, the cup, to the governor of the feast. And in verse 9, when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, did it happen in that very instant? Was his first, did it enter his mouth? And he's like, huh, what? And then all of a sudden, the flavor rushes through, through into his tongue and just, oh, this is the most incredible wine I've ever tasted. That's what he says. When he had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was. I mean, if he's a, the governor of the feast, he's probably been to a lot of these weddings. And it's like, I've tasted all kinds of vintages, but nothing ever like this. But then in parentheses, but the servants which drew the water knew, and they weren't going to say a word. Well, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and said unto him, Ha, oh, every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. That's incredible. 
I do love the way that this is portrayed in The Chosen as the, the governor of the feast explains it to make sure that everybody understands. that when the, Why give the good wine at the beginning? Because people are sober. They can really, they have the senses to be able to tell just how good this wine is or isn't. I've never tried wine before. Uh, but they say that when you're a wine taster, they drink, drink it, but then spit it out. And it's because they want to remain sober the entire time so that their senses are, are, are just, are, are sufficiently well-tuned to be able to discern all of the notes. Isn't that what they call it? I need a refresher course on, on wine tasting. Uh, but to see, actually, here's my refresher course on it myself in my own way. Uh, my wife was a huge concert goer when she was young. I was not. Uh, but when we moved to Tennessee, well, I mean, you got to go hear some country music. And some wonderful friends of ours were kind enough to invite us to a Brad Paisley concert because the husband worked for Brad Paisley and did all the lighting and got us in early and we got to see Paisley's guitars. It was amazing. And there it was at one of the, the, the best venues in Nashville. And we were new in town. And so we were living the, the dream. Uh, here we are in Music Row. And and listen to Brad Paisley. But it was interesting to be there for my first country music concert. And the opening act comes in. And they were amazing. Uh, but I'd never heard of them. And it was interesting to look around and see my new neighbors there in the South, most of whom were spending their time through the opening act getting drunk. <laughs> and say so were drinking and drinking. And by the time Brad Paisley came on, and one of the songs he sang was Alcohol, and everybody loved that one. And I'm sitting there looking around going, I'm having a cultural experience here. Uh, and, and again, these are all my new neighbors here in, in the Bible Belt. And, and it struck me, man, you got to be good to be an opening act because you're playing to a sober crowd. And it's not easy to impress them. At least not as easy as it is once they're tipsy and they're hearing the person that they came for. Well, in a similar way, this governor of the feast is blown away. Wow. Nobody keeps the good stuff till last, but you have. And that should tell us something. In fact, if you look at verse 11, as this story is concluded, John just tells us this, this beginning of miracles. And if it's just the beginning, there are more to come. But this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. Now, a lot, there's a lot to say right here. His, his disciples believed on him. Why? Because they just saw the miracle? Wait a minute. I thought faith was supposed to precede the miracle. Well, for those servants, it did. And for us, it ought to as well. In fact, for anyone there, it should. And that's why I'm grateful for the JST correction here. Instead of it ending with his disciples believed on him, the way Joseph gives us the end of this story by revelation is, and the faith of his disciples was strengthened in him. Oh, that's powerful. Faith did precede the miracle. And faith allowed the miracle to occur. And then what did the miracle end up doing to that faith? It confirmed it. It didn't create it. It strengthened it. It wasn't its source. And that is a huge difference. When you already believe or the way Alma 32 gives it to us, we have a desire to believe, to believe, and we exercise a particle of faith, but enough to bring some water to the governor of the feast, hoping that somehow it'll become wine by the time he drinks it. That's faith. And then the miracle comes. 
And what has the miracle then done? It has fortified that faith. It has strengthened it, increased it. Elder Bednar gave an amazing talk years ago about that exact process that faith can look backward at the evidence of things not seen. I had evidence. I didn't see it all clearly, but it came. And that was, the, that, that was faith in the, that I exercised in the past, and it came through for me. Now that I have that added, that added evidence, though, I can look to the future with an assurance of things not seen. Greater faith in things yet to come. I haven't seen them yet, but I'm assured that they'll come. And that actually gives me the third definition of faith that Elder Bradnar gives us. The principle of action and power in all beings. That's how allows me to function and move in the present. And it keeps spiraling upward and outward as our faith is strengthened and continues to grow. It's an amazing process that Elder Bednar lays out as better than anyone I've ever heard. They had just enough faith in Christ. We've, whatever they've seen before, whatever they, they, these are disciples that have been with him. These are servants that perhaps know a little bit. And they have enough faith in Jesus to do what he asks, stepping into the darkness. That earlier faith and its fruition has provided evidence in a small way. But now I have the courage to act in the present, and I'm walking toward the governor of the feast. He now responds to this with an acknowledgement. It's the best wine he's ever had. And what does that do? I'd come with him with assurance of things hoped for, but now that hope in the future has become evidence in my past, which is then going to propel me in my present to even greater acts of faith. And on and on and up and up, that's how we grow in God. The Lord is helping us do that. So in this case, this miracle was not performed by Jesus to engender faith as much as it was to confirm and strengthen the faith they already had. Miracles fortify faith and miracles teach truth. And what were, the, what were some of the truths that this miracle taught them and us? Well, for one, that God does tend to save the best for last that he will wow you at the beginning, but even more so at the end. In fact, if John here says this is the beginning of miracles, and then he walks you through the rest of the, the gospel of John with miracle after miracle. Remember we talked about these seven great I am statements, but also these, great, these seven signs and wonders. And this is just the beginning. And remember, at the start... You give, simpler, you give simpler wine, and, and at least in Jesus' case. Again, the opposite for others is give the best you've got at the beginning and shock and awe them, and then you can kind of peter out as time goes on. And hopefully you just they hold on to that initial impression. That's not Jesus. Jesus is a life of crescendo. That's uh, what he wants for us. It's growing brighter and brighter unto a perfect day. Okay? It's the law of increasing returns, as Elder Irene has taught, rather than the law of decreasing returns. So I'm not just going to give you the amazing miracle at the start when you're a little skeptical and I've got to prove it to you. And now that you're on my side and you've got that proof, how's that for leaping from the temple, Brothers Karamazov, right? Uh, but now that you've got the proof, I can, I can pawn off some, some lesser lessons. I can pawn off some, some meager miracles, some... some Wow, the inferior kind of influence. But that's not Jesus. This is just the beginning of miracles. And just you wait. 
It's not just Nathaniel that hasn't seen anything yet. It's all of us. And so if the beginning of miracles is changing water into wine, what will the final miracle be? When the living water offers the blood of the atonement and drinks the bitter cup, giving the wine at the Last Supper, paying for our sins, suffering our death, and rising on a third day to a magnificent marriage with his covenant people. The beginning of miracles, oh yeah. And the wine gets better and better as time goes on. This is incredible. To understand what Jesus is willing to do, what he's willing to give, what he's willing to teach. I mean, he's teaching that he's, he brings forth abundance. In fact, if the loaves and the fishes are probably the best example of that, give me what little you have and I will multiply them to meet the needs. Now that's happening here too, but he could have done that. Imagine if the servants had come or Mary had come and said, this is their last cup of wine. Uh, what are we going to do? And Jesus says, oh, I know exactly what to do. Let's multiply the wine. And we'll take this and maybe we pour some of the wine into these six water pots and then watch the water pots fill. That would have been an amazing miracle as well. But what's interesting is to start with the water. He doesn't start with, with wine. Just nothing but little old water. That's it. And then let's change it. Now, what's interesting here too is, I wish I remembered who said it. But somebody was pointing out once, is a quote I read years ago, that if you think that changing water into wine is miraculous, this is the creator of the universe we're talking about. Perhaps an even more incredible miracle is the fact that nature can turn water into grapes to begin with. <laughs> right? Think about a seed and think about soil and nutrients and water and sunlight and a grape comes out of that? And then you crush the grapes and it becomes grape juice and then it ferments with time and it, just, it turns into wine? Wow, I think the first step was the miraculous one. Just natural growth. And Christ, the Father of heaven and earth, creating things in such a way that that would occur, that's amazing. But here's one big difference. It does take time for water to grow into grapes and for grapes to, the grape juice to turn into wine. It's a lengthy process. And one of the great things about this miracle is that it teaches us that for God, time is largely irrelevant. That time is only measured unto man, as we learn elsewhere in Scripture. And what we think requires a very long process, as far as the Lord is concerned. No, that can happen in an instant. That as soon as, this is what Amulek said, I believe, that as soon as we turn to God and begin to repent of our sins, then immediately doth the plan of salvation begin to take effect. The moment you turn to the Lord, repent, that's turning, immediately the plan starts working in your favor instead of against you. It doesn't have to take as long as we sometimes think it does for miracles to happen, for healing to come, for forgiveness to change crimson sin to white, white wool. 
So trust Jesus. Uh, he, is, he is the Lord of space, but also the Lord of time. And we can trust his, his clock speed, whatever it might be. One last thing that we might learn from this lesson, the, the, uh, one of the, the meanings of the miracle, is it had to do with a wedding. People's happiest day. To that point, uh, to see wine as a symbol of joy that... Again, this is, this is hard for us Latter-day Saints to wrap our heads around because of the Word of Wisdom. And I am so grateful for the Word of Wisdom. Okay? Now, the Word of Wisdom, in some ways, is our Nazarite vow. Because a Nazarite, it's no, no wine. This is one of the examples that you can see that Jesus was not a Nazarite. He was a Nazarene. He was from Nazareth. But he wasn't a Nazarite. Uh, John the Baptist probably wasn't invited to this one. Okay? Samson wouldn't, well, Samson would have probably barged in and drunk anyway. But he wasn't supposed to. Uh, Samuel wouldn't have come. Uh, Nazarites... You don't touch the fruit of the vine in any way, shape, or form. But Jesus wasn't a Nazarite. He came to experience and share in our joys, not just in our sorrows. Now, we, like I said, we Latter-day Saints take a permanent Nazarite vow uh, to be different from the world so we can make a difference in the world. And in our particular case, we don't touch the fruit of the vine at all because that's part of our Nazarite vow as well. That's part of our, that's a part of our word of wisdom. But to see, and, and some people, I think, take it to, to the extreme and think, well, no, this could have only been, this was just grape juice. It was just changed, and so it couldn't have fermented, and there's no way that Jesus or his apostles ever would have touched anything that had fermented at all. There's no al alcoholic content whatsoever. That's us being probably a little too pharisaical. And I'm not saying this to justify people breaking the word of wisdom. Please don't take it that way. We're Nazarites, okay? Stick with it. But to see those in Scripture, Jesus included, his disciples included, this is wine at the Last Supper. In, in those days, in some ways, wine was safer than water because water could be so easily contaminated. In the Old Testament, we saw it with Noah. Uh, it's where we first catch a glimpse of what wine can do uh, in its negative way. It's like, whoa, 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 that was taking it to the extreme. And for us, it's like if there's a chance to take it to the extreme, we're going to avoid the whole thing uh, in, that, in that area. But to see wine as the symbol of joy in the Bible, that it takes the rough edge off of life, especially at a time when life had so many rough edges. And what had Christ come to do in, his, in terms of his own sacramental wine, his own sacrificial blood? It takes more than the edge off of life. It reverses the fall. It gives life meaning. It gives us hope. It gives us abundance. It gives us joy. When we see that men are that they might have joy, and we couple that with Adam fell that men might be, think about this in terms of, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. In Adam all fell, and fall, the fall brought misery and pain, anguish. And yet if Adam fell that men might be, Christ came that men might and women might be more than that, more than fallen, more than miserable. Christ came that we might find joy. And so he takes water and turns it into wine. He takes the negative and turns it into a positive. He even takes the neutral water and turns it into something far more glorious. Think about this verse in John. 
same book, chapter 10, verse 10, when Jesus says to his apostles, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. That's beautiful. He wants to rejoice with us, to mourn with those that mourn. Yes, Jesus does that. To comfort those that stand in need of comfort. Yes, he does that too. But to rejoice with us in our rejoicing. Yeah, can I come to your wedding? I just want to party with you at the reception. I just want to sing and dance and celebrate you on this beautiful day. Can I come? In fact, think about this verse. This is fascinating. Matthew chapter 9, verse 15. This is when people are wondering, hey, hey, Jesus, how come you don't fast as like John does? Why aren't you an ascetic? Why aren't you a Nazarite the way your cousin is? Shouldn't you be that? And the Lord's response, can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? (laughs) Think about that. Yes, there's times to fast, but there are times to feast. There are times to mourn, but there are times to rejoice. And a marriage is one of those. I am the bridegroom. In the church, the bride is getting herself ready. And it's a time of rejoicing. So if the bridegroom is with you, how can you mourn? Remember the song, I Need Thee Every Hour? There's a verse I think that we sometimes don't appreciate. It says, I need thee every hour in joy and pain. And sadly, I think sometimes we only turn to the Savior in our pain, knowing that only he can help us. But we sometimes leave him out of the good times. But to need him in our joy, to invite him to the wedding, to want to dance and sing and shout Hosanna with him on third day weddings. That's what I look forward to. I believe Jesus looks forward to it too. Well, that's the beginning of the miracles, but the end of the story of it. And what comes next? Look at verse 12 and 13 of John chapter 2. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brethren and his disciples. Notice uh, Joseph is not mentioned, never is, after Jesus was 12 years old and and they're there at the temple. He most likely has passed away already. But his mother's there continuing to follow him after the wedding. His brethren are there. So yes, there were were half-brothers and sisters uh, of Jesus and his disciples, the followers that are starting to pick up speed and increase in numbers. They're following him too. And they continued there not many days, not, not too long in Capernaum. Why? Because the Jews' Passover was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Remember the custom of Jesus uh, was to go to the synagogue every Sabbath, like he did back in Nazareth? Well, the custom of observant Jews was also to go up to Jerusalem on the pilgrimage feasts, and Passover was number one. And so for Jesus to go to Jerusalem, since the Passover was at hand, this is a good observant Jew. Now, this is also John making a good record. As we talked about the difference between the Synoptic Gospels and the Gospel of John, John is much more cognizant of time passing. Uh, unless the time that is needed to turn water into wine. Uh, But to see that it's a three-year ministry, that it's three Passovers that take place. uh, And this is the first one, and Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem as a result. You don't see that kind of chronological detail in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, but here we see it in John. Then what happens once he gets there for the Passover feast, verse 14 through 16, 
He found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence. Make not my father's house and house of merchandise. Now, there's a lot we could say here. Uh, I'm actually going to save much of that for the, near the end of, of our time in the Gospels because according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus does this at the end of his ministry. Around the time of the triumphal entry and the final week of the Savior's life. That cleansing temples is something Jesus does at the climax of his ministry. The, among those final miracles to purify us, to cleanse us. So the timing of that miracle is perfect in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They don't even mention this preliminary purification. Meanwhile, John has it flipped, and John talks about the purification at the beginning, the purification of the temple, the cleansing of the temple, at the beginning of the Savior's ministry, and doesn't talk about it at the end. Now, some would simply say, okay, one, of them got, one group got it wrong. Either it happened at the start or it happened at the, at the end, and they just mi mixed up their, their chronologies. Well, why? Is that the only explanation? Or could it have been done twice? And Matthew, Mark, and Luke had a purpose for talking about the second one, and John had a purpose for talking about the first. But if we include all four accounts and allow for two temple cleansings, in some ways this is a powerful way of presenting the ministry of Christ being bookended by cleansings of the temple. Why had he come to purify us? Let's do that from the very beginning. And let's do it again at the very end. I mean, after all, people, even cleansed things get dirty again. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Sadly. And a purified temple doesn't stay that way. You're going to need to keep following Jesus. And he'll keep purifying you along the way. There, there's something about this, the story of Jesus coming full circle and centering on the temple, which is one of John's main focal points. John focuses on Jerusalem, where Matthew, Mark, Luke talk more about what happened up in Galilee. And to see there this time of Passover, huh, when, when the blood of the Lamb is shed so that slaves can be freed from their bondage and begin their journey to the promised land, Huh, yeah, that's a good thing to do at the beginning of a ministry and not just at the end. To prove what the Passover lamb has come to accomplish. So let's take this as happening here. I want to talk more about how Jesus is doing this and why there seems to be no opposition to this act. Ah, that's shocking. Why didn't, there's all these people. Why didn't they stop him? We'll talk more about that when we get to the final cleansing uh, near the end of the Gospels. But to see what's happening here, driving them out of the temple, sheep, oxen, this whip, this scourge of small cords, is this, is this Jesus being violent? What's interesting, when he talks to the people that are selling doves and tells them to take these things hence, hmm, so he doesn't sm shatter or smash the cage where the doves would have been held, because no, those will fly away and you probably never get them back. Uh, just driving out, and this isn't inside the temple. When the scriptures, when the gospels talk about the temple, don't think inside the building. When we Latter-day Saints talk about going to the temple, we're talking about entering it and performing ordinances. 
They wouldn't have done that. They're not priests. They're not Levites. They're not the high priest going into the Day of Atonement. That's not them. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. <laughs> Ironically, he couldn't go into his own house. And by the way, he calls it that, but only in the second time. This first time he talked about my father's house. What are you doing? You're turning it into a house of merchandise. Whereas the second time he calls it my house. And he has some other things to say about it that are really fascinating. Well, preview of coming attractions. Okay, stick with me. We'll get there. But it's my father's house. It's my house. It's got to be kept clean. But the house he's talking about, specifically cleansing, is the temple mount. King Herod had done so much to beautify the temple and to expand it. Uh, this was the large, and, and then to expand the block that it was on. Okay, when Jesus is taken to the pinnacle of the temple, there's two possibilities. The very top of the temple structure itself, or the edge of the temple mount that King Herod had extended out into the valley, the Kidron Valley beside it, that now has this sharp drop-off, this steep drop-off down to the valley floor below. Uh, this is not just some gentle hill that the temple's on like it was in David or Sol Solomon's day. No. Herod wants to extend and expand the Temple Mount itself. And so this is a massive undertaking. It was the largest religious structure on earth at the time. And that's saying something when the Greeks and the Romans had their pantheons and Parthenons and everything else. No, the Temple in Jerusalem was like nothing else. And so when Jesus goes to the Temple to teach or here to cleanse, it's the Temple Mount that he's pushing, the, herding the animals off of and expelling the money changers from. In, for a Latter-day Saint, this would be Temple Square. He's cleansing Temple Square, okay? And he's not, he's not breaking bird cages. Please take these away. He's herding out the animals, but they'll be easily gathered up and, uh, and re-herded, uh, corralled, but do it somewhere else, please. Because what you've done here is turn my father's house into a house of merchandise. When he talks about it later for himself, it's a den of thieves. And there's something powerful about that, about that description we'll get to later. But this, den of, this house of merchandise, instead of my father's house of glory and house of prayer and house of fasting and house of faith, all the stuff we see in section 88 and 109, you see... In some ways, the people there were doing the Jews a favor. Otherwise, every Jew traveling down from Galilee, thinking of you, Jesus, and your disciples, you're going to have to bring your own animals with you. And it's hard enough to, to herd the family, let alone herding a bunch of animals to feed them with once you get there. And so it had become a, an opportunity to serve others by having, what do they list? Oxen, sheep, doves for the poor, it became a service opportunity that will help you and we'll, take, we'll keep the animals here. And when it's easier to bring money, it's more portable. Just bring your money and instead of buying an animal back at home, you can buy an animal here and it saves you all the transport challenges. And that way you can offer your, your sacrificial lamb for the Passover. That's, that's good. That's helpful. If you think about, it's ironic that sometimes people say, well, why are there money changers in Latter-day Saint temples today? I went and rented temple clothing and, and there was a cash register in the temple of all places, and we kind of freak out over that. Would Jesus come in and fashion his cord and smash the cash register? 
Well, no, this is actually a convenience that the temple is offering. And in smaller temples, they don't, they don't even offer the convenience. You better bring your own temple clothes. Please have them. Please bring them. I'll even say it becomes incredibly meaningful when you're folding your own temple robes rather than just sending them back to be washed by someone else. Uh, and that, the cost isn't... The, the, what we're doing in renting the clothing is offsetting the costs of cleansing them and keeping them and providing them and everything else. Okay? That is a way to assist temple patrons. And originally, that would have been the case for these people too. The problem is, does it begin to encroach onto... I mean, at the beginning, I'm guessing they were probably temple flocks and temple herds off-site. Oh, but let's get it closer and closer. In fact, let's start populating the Temple Mount itself with all of these money changers. Because if you've come from across the empire with Roman coins, you can't give those to the, to the Jewish temple. So you're going to have to change those. And why don't we have a, let's, let's have a little ATM right here on site. What do you say? We'll have money changers at the Temple Mount. We'll have the, and as soon as they change their money, then they can make their temple offerings in that way. They can, they've got a little, some extra, they can, they can buy their, their sacrificial offerings, their ox or their sheep or their dove. Yeah, we're doing you a favor. Had Mary and Joseph brought doves with them when they came from Bethlehem? Or did they have to scrimp and save and Joseph had to do some little sweat equity and build something so that someone would pay him just enough he could go and purchase two turtle doves to make the offering for Jesus. I don't know. Those are details lost in the midst of history. But here, what begins as a service to others, has it become self-serving? Has it become merchandise instead of worship, as far as their focus is concerned? If that ever got, if that, if that ever began to happen in the temple, believe me, there'd be no cash registers there. Uh, there'd be probably no patron assistance. It's, we want to avoid even the appearance of evil. It's sad, I think, sometimes when something that's necessary becomes a necessary evil, because it's now evil. Uh, that the temporal, which is part of life, and as far as the Lord is concerned, DNC 29, even the temporal is spiritual to him. But when the temporal begins to eclipse and then replace the spiritual, and that's why we're here. That's what we're doing. This is a house of merchandise, and nothing sells quite like sacrifice. Yikes. There's nothing worth quite so much as somebody else's worship. Whoa, that's priestcraft. And if there are necessary things to keep the lights on and to pay the bills, you better be purifying your motives every step of the way. Or the Lord will come and purify them His way, which is casting all of that away. Okay? Can you picture it taking three years for it to start to encroach its way back in? And Jesus returns and realizes, ah, it's time to do it again. That's something we need to do. Purify our motives. Make sure that even the temporal is for spiritual purposes. We might have to do it more frequently than every three years. But keep going here. And when you see verse 17, 
I mean, everyone else is probably shock and awe, horrified, like, whoa, 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 all the shopkeepers and the animal keepers and the, and the money changers and what, what's happening here? And the disciples kind of jaw drop like, whoa, this is, okay, what, Jesus, this is strong. Okay, this is, this is lion rather than lamb. He's come as the Passover lamb. Well, here's the, here's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he's roaring in his house. And verse 17, the disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Oh, and this is gnawing at Jesus. Zeal has eaten his up, him up. Zeal for his father's house. Now, remember Matthew is the one that always seems to quote Old Testament scripture? Well, here John is doing it, but not for his reader's sake. It's not that, that's what Matthew does. Hey, hey, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Don't you remember this scripture? Jesus just fulfilled it. These are the disciples in the moment. And John is just narrating. This verse pops into their head. There is some holy fire, and it is kindling within Jesus and burning a path before him in his Father's holy house. Okay, yeah, this is zeal. For the house of the Lord. Verse 18 through 21 then. Then answered the Jews. They finally kind of come to their senses. They kind of woken up after seeing all this shock and awe. And it's like, whoa, whoa. Why did we let him do that? And they, the Jews answered and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Interesting that they'd be sign seeking after the last story we just saw. <laughs> as far as changing water into wine. Well, they weren't there for that. But they want, they want proof. They want evidence. In some ways, what they're asking is, who gave you the right to do this? Where's your proof of authority? It's like somebody, I don't know, pulling you over and saying you're under citizen's arrest. And you're like, what? Can, can you do that? What sign do you have? Show me, your, show me your badge that proves your authority here. And what's Jesus' authority? His answer is fascinating. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Oh, once again, we get a hint about something that takes place on a third day. Something magnificent, like a, like a marriage. Something oh, towering over you, like the temple. Yeah, destroy it, and in three days I'll raise it up. How's that for my evidence of authority? Now, the Jews are totally confused by this. The Jews said, 40 and 6 years was this temple in building. Herod the Great did this for almost five decades. That's, that's more than a lifetime for most people. And wilt thou rear it up in three days? Now, they're taking this literally, but John gives us the necessary clue. But he spake of the temple of his body. That's going to dawn on the disciples a little more clearly as time goes on. But again, here you see at the very beginning of the Savior's ministry, a foreshadowing of the end of his ministry. Three days and then a wedding. Three days and the temple that's been destroyed will be raised again, resurrected. I'm talking about my body here. Don't get lost in the literal when the symbolic includes the kinds of meanings that the Lord is trying to convey. And notice one other detail in what he said about it. You go ahead and destroy the temple. You will. He's not saying, I'm going to destroy this temple, and then I'll bring it back up again. No, that, that, far from it. I'm trying to keep it clean. You will end up destroying me. Or so you think. 
but I will raise it up after three days. It's not even the Father will raise me from the grave. I will raise myself. I have power over life and power over death. I can lay it down. I can take it up again. And so he will. Now, verse 22, when therefore he was risen from the dead, and this is obviously John writing long after the fact, reflecting back on it. So, preview of coming attractions. Here's the fulfillment of the foreshadowing. When he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them. Oh, yeah. Remember? Oh, no way. Remember three years ago when he said that the temple would be destroyed and then three days. Oh, oh, Jesus wasn't talking about that building. He was talking about his body. Duh. Why didn't we see that coming? So with that realization, that remembrance, they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. They believed the scripture. Oh, yes, so much that prophesied of what Jesus would come to do. And his word. Oh, yeah, Jesus had been dropping hints himself, left and right. And they finally get it. And someday we will too. Uh, Be be careful, uh, be slow to condemn the disciples and the apostles, because in many ways we're just like them. Some ways we're not even as good as they are. But the day will come where it'll all make sense to us. And hopefully then we will remember that Jesus said it would always be this way. And it will strengthen our faith. We'll believe the scriptures. We'll believe his word. And the words of his servants, it is the same. I see that every time somebody leaves the church and struggles in their faith. As we'll study when we get to Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said it would be like that too. And as heartbreaking as it is to watch it occur, there is a part of me that thinks right on schedule. And I believe the scriptures, and I believe the word, because I remember that Jesus said it would be this way. Now, verse 23 to 25, notice the aftermath of this. Uh, We're not going to call it the first miracle, but this first cleansing. Verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, after all of this had occurred, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. JST, he knew all things. Okay, And needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Which is so interesting. That's the end of this chapter. A chapter that began with an incredible miracle, but a miracle that didn't produce the initial faith. It came as a result of the initial faith and then fortified the faith that was there. The problem down here is, are they hearing about miracles that have taken place up in the Galilee? Has news of the water turning to wine spreading south? And if so, is it those miracles that is the beginning of their faith? Are the, is, it the, is that the only reason they believe? Because if so, that's not faith. That's acknowledgement of the obvious. This guy can do incredible things. Let's follow him. Well, what if he chooses not to? What if he decides to try your faith? Oh, you never had faith to begin with. It was just perfect knowledge. You you leapfrogged that. You skipped over when faith is supposed to grow into knowledge. You missed out on something. Take advantage of your days of doubt because that's where faith can begin (laughs) to, to function. They hadn't done that yet. And so for them... No wonder Jesus doesn't commit himself unto them because they haven't fully committed themselves unto him. 
They're just kind of walking around like, when's the next, you know, shock and awe? When's the next show? Here we are spectators in this spectator sport. No, worship is not a spectator sport. Following Jesus, discipleship is not a spectator sport. Will you believe? So he doesn't commit himself unto them, and he doesn't need any to testify. That's an interesting phrase, too. He needed not that any should testify of man, because he knew what was in man. And he wasn't that impressed. <laughs> he, he knew just how fickle, how skeptical, how slow to believe, and how quick to forget we are by human nature. No wonder we have to put off the natural man and become a saint through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Oh, then he'll commit himself to us because we're committed to him. But he gets it. He gets us. He condescended to gain that comprehension. And as a result, to our weakness, he's no stranger. And so he works within human nature in order to change human nature. It's okay that you don't yet believe. Let's keep working on it. And let me try your faith. Let me teach you some more truth in hopes that a particle of faith will begin to grow into an actual belief that then precedes the miracles. Because we'll, there's more miracles coming. It's with that that I find John chapter 3 so fascinating. Because right on the heels of Jesus saying, oh, I know what's in man. He's going to meet a man <laughs> that is still very, very much the natural man. This is Nicodemus. And he's going to have better days to come. But this first initial impression leaves us slightly or greatly unimpressed. We don't exactly know the, the aftermath of this in the immediate term. We're going to see, like I said, some examples of how it changes him in the long run. But begin John chapter 3 and meet this man that Jesus knows the nature of all too well. Verse 1 and 2. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Ah, what, what's the chronology for Nicodemus? What's the order here? We've seen the miracles, thus we know that thou art a teacher come from God. Ah, did you miss out on the chance to exercise faith, Nicodemus? Did you believe I was a teacher come from God? Did you hope? Did you desire to believe that I was a teacher come from God? And then the miracles confirmed that, that budding faith, fanned the flames? Or did that kindle the fire? Because if that's the case, then the fire is going to blow out as soon as the winds of opposition begin to blow. Ah, I get the timing right here. We're going to talk about wind in just a moment. But what do we know already about this man? This is our initial impression. Uh, we know that he's a man, okay? We know he's of the Pharisees, and Pharisees get a bad rap because of the New Testament Gospels. Jesus is always calling them out. But the people actually really looked up to the Pharisees because they were so strict to the law. Remember this scribal religion that we saw, that Jesus came as one having authority and not as the scribes? He didn't care to quote chapter and verse every single time because everything he said was new chapter and new verse. Okay? He is the Word made flesh. He doesn't have to quote other people's words. Those old prophets written in Scripture were just quoting him anyway, so he can eliminate the middleman. But 
Pharisees were so tied to the law and were so strict in their observance of it that people looked up to them going, that's what real religion looks like. That's piety. That's obedience. But here he is, a devout, strictly obedient Pharisee. He's a ruler, so most likely a member of the Sanhedrin, this kind of ruling judgment body that's passing judgment on everyone else, including Jesus, every time he seems to break the law. And his name was Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus is interesting because it's a Greek name. So is this more evidence of the Hellenization of, of the Mediterranean world, including the Hellenization of Judaism? Uh, is he trying to make up for whatever his parents did and giving him this horrible Greek name? And I'm trying to be as strictly obedient to the law of Moses as he can. Is he overswinging the pendulum? I don't know. What's interesting, though, is Nicodemus, combination of these two words, two words. If you wear any Nike gear, Nike is the goddess of victory. And so Nico comes from that word, and it means victory. And then demos, if you're a Democrat or, go, or, or live in a democratic society, democracy is ruled by the people. So demos is people. So Nicodemus is victory of the people. Interesting. To think about him as perhaps a personification of the victorious people. Look what we've become. We're still holding to our law despite the Roman overlords that are trying to Hellenize us. Well, the Greeks were Hellenizing us. The Romans are Romanizing us. Uh, but no, I'm standing firm. And here I am, a victorious person. Then again, is this a hint at who, he's, who his conversation partner is? Oh, there's the true victory of the people. This is the Word made flesh. This is victory, divine victory, condescending to be among the people and to talk to one of those people who feels pretty victorious himself as a ruler of the Jews. Well, he comes at night, not wanting to be noticed. Ah, Jesus is beneath me. Ah, he's come from God, but I'm a victory of the people. He's... He's a rabbi, I guess we can call him that, but I'm a ruler. And, and yes, rabbi really means, it can mean my master, it can also mean my teacher, and sure enough, you're a teacher come from God, so you're some kind of wandering rabbi. I'm here, kind of set among the Sanhedrin, uh, but glad you came down to Jerusalem so I could sneak out, hopefully with nobody noticing. I can't lower myself to your level, but here I am nonetheless, and... There's something about you that's different. It makes me wonder when he says, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. Is that the royal we? That I, we, but me, myself, and I are all wondering. Or are there other people among the Sanhedrin? We'll meet Joseph of Arimathea later, and he's an important figure. Are there others that are, again, too shy to admit, too ashamed to allow other people to assume that, wait, 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 you're not going to follow that the carpenter's kid, are you? You're not going to follow the friend of fishermen. Look at this, this ragged, ragtag bunch of people. No, Nicodemus doesn't want to be known, but he does want to know. And the one thing he does know to this point is you must be a man of God because nobody can do what you do unless God is with him. Oh, think about that word. God with him. God with 
us, Emmanuel. Who are you, Rabbi? Well, in this case, he's about to find out. And in verse 3 and 4, Jesus answered, which is so ironic because Nicodemus technically hadn't asked him anything. He's just saying, hey, you're a teacher come from God. Uh, you, you must be because all the stuff that we've seen. Well, Jesus responds. Maybe that's not answer in terms of question, but answer in terms of response. And what does he say? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, my friend, you're going to need new eyes to see the kingdom I've come to build. And you usually don't get new eyes unless there's been a new birth, since your eyes opened after birth. So, my friend, you came at night, not a whole lot of light around, difficult to see. If you want to see the kingdom of God, there are some major changes you're going to need to make. It's not enough to recognize me as a mere rabbi. I'm more than that. I'm not, I, just, I haven't just come from God. I am God coming unto you. I am Emmanuel. And so you're going to need to admit that, acknowledge that, confess that, proclaim that, and accept me for who I am. If you don't, you'll never see the light that is now shining in your darkness. So will you be born again? A, a, a new beginning so stark that you'll begin to date your days from this moment? That's how dramatic it's going to be. It's a full-fledged rebirth. It is coming up out of the water. Think about, we think of, the, of baptism as the tomb, the grave, and we're lowering you, burying you in the grave and bringing you back. That's the symbolism that, that Paul uses in the book of Romans. But also because it's water, not just to wash sin away, but water in terms of the womb. I mean, I've never been to a baptism where the, the, someone emerges and says, my water broke. Yeah, that would probably be inappropriate for the occasion, but it would be accurate for the symbolism. And to emerge from this watery womb to a newness of life. So, Nicodemus, let's not talk about me. Uh, yes, I'm a teacher come from God, but let's talk about you and what you see or are unwilling to see. You want to see the kingdom of God, then be born again. Now, Nicodemus's response is classic in verse 4. Nicodemus saith unto him, Huh? How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And you can picture Jesus immediately facepalming right there like, are you serious? You don't see the symbolism here. I'm trying to make this one an easy one. I'm throwing underhand to start. It's going to get trickier as, we as time goes on. But wow, you are such a literalist. No wonder, again, it's the scribes that pour over every jot and tittle of Scripture. It's a scribal religion now because there's been no prophets for the last four and a half centuries. No wonder Jesus is such an odd man out because he doesn't worry about quoting chapter and verse. He just comes speaking with authority. Nicodemus would be cut from that other cloth, taking things literally and not understanding symbolism behind what he's saying. So that to me is absolutely hilarious. Uh, born again? My mom's not going to want to hear this. Whoa, really, Nicodemus? Verse 5, Jesus explains it a little more clearly then. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
Okay, I'm trying to make this a little simpler for you. Rebirth, born of water, born of the spirit. When you were born physically, what happened? You emerged from the water of the womb and you breathed the breath of life. Okay, and what I'm looking for now is a spiritual rebirth that also involves water, immersion in baptism, and involves spirit. Because remember in Hebrew, spirit and breath and wind, we'll see that brought up in a moment, are all the same word. That God is breathing the breath of life. And here comes Adam. Here comes Adam, a living soul. That the wind is moving upon the waters. You understand? This is a new creation. The breath of God as he speaks and says, let there be light. All of this is coming together in what Jesus is teaching and what Nicodemus ought to understand. I'm talking spiritual rebirth here. And without it, not only will you not see the kingdom, as he said earlier, but you'll never enter the kingdom. I mean, if you can't see it, of course you're not going to enter. But how close can you come? You still can't come inside without spiritual rebirth. So let's explain a little bit more. Verse 6 through 8. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. So quit thinking in terms of the flesh alone. Please, Nicodemus, think in terms of the spirit. Rise above the words on the page and understand the word of God that's staring you in the face. Let's look at some spiritual things for a moment, shall we? So he says, marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Don't be shocked that such a radical change is required. I mean, you're never going to get a new result by doing things in the same old way. So marvel not. Was it Alma the Younger that said something similar? This shouldn't come as a surprise to us. He then says, the wind, and again, wind means breath, wind means spirit. The wind bloweth where it listeth. And listeth is just kind of wherever it goes, wherever it decides. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. You see, my friend, you Pharisees want to count steps on the Sabbath. You want to, <laughs> oh, speaking of birds in cages when he cleansed the temple, you want to cage the Holy Ghost. Good thing it only descended like a dove, not in a form of dove. <laughs> that wasn't a shapeshifter. Because you would have tried to catch it and, and put it in a cage somewhere. That's, that's what the letter of the law, with no flexibility into, in terms of the spirit of the law, that's what it entails. And you Pharisees are doing exactly that. And so we've got to rise above this fleshly level up to the level of the spirit. You've got to come up off the ground and be allowed to be moved by the wind, by the spirit by the breath of God that you are feeling as I whisper into your ear under cover of darkness. You see, my friend, the spirit, the wind blows where it listeth. You don't even see it, do you? But you can see its evidence. You can hear the sound. You can feel it move you. You can see it moving the leaves on the trees. Let's go back to that second one. Do you feel it moving you? 
Do you feel it guiding you? Now, you may not know where it comes from. You certainly don't know where I come from. And you might not know where it's going to take you. And that might be cause for alarm. Because it's going to take you to places you never dreamed. Especially not as a Pharisee. But come. Catch the wind. Yield to the enticings of the Holy Spirit. That's what a kite does. It just finally gives up. It just yields and allows the wind to catch it. And bring it up and take it wherever the wind listeth, wherever it chooses. And that's what the Lord is asking us to do. Will you submit your will to mine, Nicodemus? Will you let me be your ruler, O thou ruler of the Jews? Will your darkness yield to my light so that you can not only see the kingdom of God, but that you can enter it by following me? Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right here. So take my hand and come, Nicodemus. The choice is yours. In some ways, if we, if we traded out the synonyms, the spirit bloweth, excuse me, the wind bloweth where it listeth. Think of him saying something like, the spirit breathes wherever God chooses. And if you have the courage to come, it will take you exactly where you need to go. When he says, you hear the wind, do you hear the voice of God? You are right now. Please listen. Is this beginning to dawn on Nicodemus? I don't know yet. Does he know? <laughs> He's a tough nut to crack. He's taking everything too literally. It's surface value. It's stay on the ground. No, I can't lift my head up into the wind. I have no idea where it's going to take me. I know. Trust. Come. Instead, Nicodemus says in verse 9 and 10, he answered and said unto him, how can these things be? How, how, how is it possible? How can anyone just pick up and go wherever the wind blows them? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? There's another face palm. You're supposed to understand. If you don't get it, how is anyone? Well, maybe that's the answer. Maybe you don't get it because you're too high. Maybe your head is in the clouds more than you realize. But you're above the wind when you need to just let it take you. These disciples that are beginning to follow, they get it better than you do. And it's not because they are quoting every chapter and every verse. Some they know, and they'll remember later that I told them <laughs> that it was all true. But for the most part, they just follow my wind, hear my voice, feel my breath, whispering invitations to come unto me. You master of Israel, you ought to know. It's interesting because in a, mo in, in a way, Jesus is making high demands of Nicodemus. But Nicodemus is in a high station, so that's where you get high demands. In some ways, Jesus is expecting more of him. Because where much was given, much was required. You're in charge. You should know this. You know the scriptures backwards and forwards. And these scriptures testify of me. We'll see that clearly taught in John chapter 5. Don't you get it? I remember when I went to divinity school and my first advisor was a Latter-day Saint professor who is incredible. She now runs the Mormon Studies program at the University of Virginia, Kathleen Flake. And she's, 
she's intense because she knows so much. I am so grateful for her mentoring, her example. But it was tough love. I knew the love was in there, but man, it was, it was tough. And she warned me that at the very beginning. Said, Halverson, you're a Latter-day Saint, just like me. So you reflect my church. You, you better know your stuff. And in some ways, it felt like I was coach's kid. I mean, in one class, we had all studied each other's papers that we were writing for her. And so we all were giving each other critique and peer review, right? Some feedback. And one sweet, sweet woman who was coming to Divinity School for a second career in her retirement, just loved the Lord and just wanted to be a minister. And was not an academic by any stretch, but just a heart of gold. And Dr. Flake knew that and didn't expect her to become the academic overnight. And so as she was critiquing this classmate's paper, it was very, very gentle and loving and supportive. I'm like, where have you been all this? Really? Well, okay, yeah. You, you think Dr. Flake has a heart of gold as well. But then it got to my paper. And I... I'd given it all I had, and it was academic, and I thought it was well-researched and well-written, and I was getting good feedback from the other students, all of whose papers I had read and compared as well. And then Dr. Flake just launched into my paper, like, with red pen in hand, like a scalpel, uh, and, and just started shredding. Well, how can you say that? And thankfully, I, wasn't, I had enough confidence in my research that I could push back and go, well, yeah, good point. Thank you for pointing that out. But what about this? And she's like, well, but what about here? And I'm like, well, yeah, but because of this. And it was almost like the other, I don't know, dozen students kind of disappeared into the distance as two Latter-day Saints were going at it over a Latter-day Saint history topic. <laughs> okay. And I could just picture the other students thinking like, whoa, is this how Latter-day Saints do it? Like, this is intense. Aren't these guys on the same team? Whoo! To the point, actually, when the class was over and people were getting up to leave, this sweet older woman that had been treated so kindly put her arm around me and said, Jared, are you okay? And I just laughed. I said, oh, yeah, this is what I came for. This is what I signed up for. I want to be pushed. I want to be questioned. I want to understand this stuff. And so, yeah, this was a little painful, but it was, it was fun in a masochistic sort of way. And in many ways, I just realized I'm grateful Dr. Flake believes in me and is willing to push me because much had been given. And boy, from her, much was required. I'm so grateful for that. Jesus is, Nicodemus, you're coach's kid. You're a ruler of the Jews. You ought to understand this because you're the one that ought to be teaching it. Come follow me and among the fishermen and tax collectors, and anti-Roman zealots, and everyone else is going to come my way. Come and follow too. Well, Nicodemus doesn't get it. Uh, how can these things be? How could anyone be born again? How can anyone have the courage to follow the wind where it blows? Well, verse 11 and 12, this might help you understand. Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen. And ye receive not our witness. Now notice all the plural pronouns there, we and we and we and our. Who's this cloud of witnesses that Jesus is including himself in? Are these the ancient prophets? Are these the, the disciples of his day? Oh, to borrow from Abinadi, are these the feet 
of those beautiful feet of those that are publishing peace, both past and present and future, right there around the glorious feet of Jesus? I think so. We speak and we know because we've seen. Will you receive our witness? It's not just my wind that's blowing. It's blowing from the mouths of my servants, from every dispensation, calling you to come. So come, Nicodemus. He goes on, if I have told you earthly things, like physical birth, hinting at spiritual birth, like water and wind, instead of baptism and Holy Ghost. If I have told you earthly things and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Come on, Nicodemus, if earthly analogies don't make sense to you, then the spiritual reality would be far, far above your head. (laughs) That's the wind. Maybe that's the wind you're hearing. It's just blowing right over you. And you don't get it will stretch, rise, climb, ascend, and you'll begin to understand something. But it's something symbolic. And until you can look past the earthly to the heavenly, until you can see past the temporal onto the spiritual, then you're never going to get it. Now, we just cleansed the temple, so let me say something about the temple again. Because as we go to the temple, not just the mount, (laughs) but inside, that is the most symbolic house of learning you'll ever see. Because symbolism is the Lord's teaching style. We'll see it in the parables as we get to them shortly. But Jesus taught in a way that you could, it was a gift that kept on giving. It was a lesson from which you could keep on learning. Because at one level it's just a story. Then get up and uh, and learn a little bit more and you realize, ooh, there's a moral to the story. And get beyond that and you realize, whoa, he's teaching the plan of salvation or the kingdom of God or wow, this is mind-blowing. And that's what symbols are. If a picture is worth a thousand words, then a symbol is worth a thousand lessons. And with a simple symbol, it's layer after layer after layer of meaning that you just peel away and come to the core. That's the temple. That's the endowment. That's the symbolism of God's ultimate classroom. And he set it up that way on purpose. Sadly, there are those that enter the temple and cannot get past the earthly thing. Well, why do we do that? Why do we say that? Why do we wear that? Why does it think? Just ponder. And don't beat yourself up if you don't get it, because this is a lesson that will keep teaching you the thousandth time you come. And if there's something new on the thousandth time, then yeah, on the first time, you're drinking from the fire hose. Prepare yourself. But prepare yourself to go from earthly to heavenly. And ponder the symbol until you start seeing, why would Jesus talk about that? Why did he talk about water? Why did he talk about wind and the temple? Why these words or phrases? Why these symbols or signs? Why what I do or say or hear or wear? It's all symbolic. And I'm trying to gain the eyes to see. I love the quote from John A. Whitsell, who's talking about the symbolism of the temple and the endowment and says this, We live in a world of symbols. No man or woman can come out of the temple endowed as he should be, unless he has seen beyond the symbol the mighty realities for which the symbols stand. 
And again, that's going to be a lifelong process. Okay. Don't beat yourself up like, oh, great. I haven't been properly endowed yet. Well, no, the endowment itself is a gift that keeps on giving. That's what an endowment is in terms of like a, a temporal or economic endowment to a university, for example, an endowed chair. It's here's all this money that you'll never spend, but you'll live off of the interest. And with the interest, you can pay the professor. For the, with the interest, you can give scholarships to the students. With the interest, you can run the university. That's why universities have endowments. And when the Lord gives you an endowment, it's a gift that keeps on giving. It's a lesson from which you keep on learning. And that's what symbolism does. Layer after layer of significance. So you're growing into your endowment. You're growing up in God. But it comes with seeing the realities, the spiritual realities behind the earthly thing in front of you. So Nicodemus, don't worry about your mother. She's going to be fine. She needs to be reborn too. And it has nothing to do with her mother. Be born of water and of the Spirit. Come unto me. One other thing that Elder Widso says in this great quote, To the man or woman who goes through the temple with open eyes, heeding the symbols and the covenants. So don't come at night, Nicodemus. Come with eyes full, fully open to see the light of the world. If you'll heed the symbols, if you'll heed the covenants, the ones that I'm trying to get you to make or invite you to make, water and spirit, if you make a steady, continuous effort to understand the full meaning, Elder Witso says, then what happens? God speaks his word and revelations come. This is, Jesus is revealing things to you right now, Nicodemus, if you have ears to hear. Elder Witso says, the endowment is so richly symbolic that only a fool would attempt to describe it, to put it into merely mortal terms. It is so packed full of revelations to those who exercise their strength to seek and see that no human words can explain or make clear the possibilities that reside in the temple service. Oh, there's wind blowing like you wouldn't imagine, and it will blow you to places you've never dreamed. The endowment which was given by revelation can best be understood by revelation. And to those who seek most vigorously with pure hearts will the revelation be greatest. Oh, I love those words from Elder Widso. And for the last, oh, nearly 30 years that I've been attending the temple, line upon line, precept upon precept, symbol upon symbol, insight upon insight, the Lord is teaching me. And it's a glorious lesson. Best of all, I'm getting to know the teacher, the professor this way. And there's no better way to do it. Well, the Lord continues with this lesson himself, trying to help Nicodemus see in the dark. And he says in verse 13, No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Now, when, as you're reading uh, John chapter 3 more quickly than I am, <laughs> which isn't hard to do, that verse, verse 13, sometimes kind of catches you off guard. It's like a speed bump, and it was moving smoothly, and then all of a sudden, wait, wait, what's this about ascending to heaven and coming down from heaven, and that's the Son of Man? What, what are you getting at here in the midst of this talk about earthly things and heavenly things? Well, literally, what is happening, the Word is made flesh. He is dwelling among us. And he who, is the only be, who has the glory of the only begotten of the Father has come down full of grace and truth, well, willing to pour out some of that grace and truth upon us. This is John 1 being brought into John 3. 
heavenly things and earthly things? Well, guess what Jesus has come to do? As the ultimate heavenly thing himself, he is coming down to become a mere earthly thing. And he's bringing heavenly insights down to earth for mere mortals to understand. You see, for you to make sense of things, what was your question again, Nicodemus? How can these things be? Well, that's what I came to explain. Because it's not that someone here has kind of stormed heaven. Somehow climbed up Jacob's ladder and poked around, got into periscope depth and, and found the clues and brought them back down to earth. No, you only know things as earth only knows what heaven chooses to reveal. There's no Tower of Babel that will allow you to climb sufficiently high to understand the things of God. There's no shortcuts. But God is willing to condescend to teach you if you'll simply be patient and faithful and have eyes to see and ears to hear. So when he says, no man hath ascended up to heaven, there's a sense of no, nobody's sneaking in to get the mysteries of the, of the universe. You'll never get them. But he that came down from heaven, even the son of man who you're speaking to, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, he's the one that's in heaven and brings heaven down to earth. It's one of the favorite, my favorite things that Brigham Young said about Joseph Smith, that he had a gift to bring heaven down to earth. That he... It's kind of like Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln was so popular as an orator because he could take complex political ideas, for example, and he'd just kind of weave a tale and tell a story, and in his kind of homespun wisdom, that's interesting. It was wisdom, but it was homespun. And, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's Christ himself. Heavenly wisdom himself coming down to be swaddled in swaddling clothes. A word made flesh. And that was Joseph's great gift of taking eternal principles and teaching it in a way that a bunch of frontier pioneers could wrap their, hand, their heads around. That's a gift. That's humility. And so, please understand, Nicodemus, I've come to explain. And in fact, I've even come to make it possible for mere mortals like you to understand it. Now, at this point, though, I do wonder, because Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews, because he knows the, the scriptures, the word of God, so well, at least on an earthly level, he takes it all literally, unfortunately, but as a ruler of the scribal religion that knows chapter and verse for everything, I wonder if he knew the chapter and verse Jesus was just hinting at. Because when he spoke about ascending to heaven, coming down from heaven, the Son of Man, which is in heaven, he, most likely he's alluding to Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4. In the middle of wisdom literature, and here's Nicodemus trying to be a wise man to understand heavenly wisdom. But listen to this verse, Proverbs 30, verse 4. Who hath ascended up into heaven, or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fists? Remember, I've been talking about the wind blowing where it listeth. Who hath bound the waters in a garment? And I've been talking about being born of water this whole time. Who hath established all the ends of the earth? Oh, that's the creator. That's the wind upon the water. That's the breath of God. What is his name? The proverb asks. And what is his son's name? If thou canst tell. Who's the Almighty God who sent the Son of Man from heaven down to earth? I mean, when you read John 3.13 in light of Proverbs 30, verse 4, it's like, whoa. 
All the elements are there. But even better, if Nicodemus was wise enough to think, wait a minute, this sounds a lot like Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4. And you picture Jesus with a twinkle in his eye like, yeah, do you know the verses that precede it? I heard it said once that Elder Bruce R. McConkie knew the scripture so well that if you quoted one, he could quote the scripture right before it and right after it. Maybe not every scripture, but you do that enough, that's pretty impressive. But if Nicodemus was on that level, what are the two verses leading up to Proverbs 30, verse 4? Listen to verse 2 and 3. Surely I am more brutish than any man, and have not the understanding of a man. I neither learned wisdom nor have the knowledge of the holy. (laughs) No wonder you need heaven to condescend to earth to teach you. Yeah, I wonder if Nicodemus blushed if he realized that. And Jesus kind of winked and said, it's okay. It's okay that you don't know. You'll get there. I came down to teach you. In fact, let me tell you, let me make this easier first. Verse 14 and 15 of John chapter 3. Let's go with an easier analogy, okay? If wind is too oh, esoteric, let's, let's bring it down to earth. Verse 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Is this a little more clear for you, Nicodemus? The Son of Man has come down to teach wisdom, but he's also come down to be lifted up. Here's John once again foreshadowing Jesus' death and resurrection from the very beginning. And Jesus dropping subtle hints, maybe not so subtle. The Son of Man is going to be lifted up just like Moses lifted the brazen serpent because people who have been bitten by this generation of vipers in their wilderness wanderings need something to look to in order to live. I am a second Moses, a lawgiver come down to teach, but I'm also the brazen serpent itself, and I will be raised on a staff of Roman making when I'm crucified for the sins of the world. Are you starting to get it, Nicodemus? Are you starting to understand who I am? Because if not, let me say it even more clearly, what I've come to do. Verse 16 and 17. And John 3.16 is one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture. Go to any football game and you'll probably see somebody holding a sign with John 3.16. Look at a Christian athlete. You might even see it in their eye black. Uh, etched in of John 3.16, which tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now keep reading. 17 ought to come on the heels of 16 every time we think of it. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Nicodemus, I know I'm, I know I'm treating you with tough love. You're the coach's kid. You're the ruler of the Jews. You ought to know better. And so I, I'm expecting more of you. But I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to teach you. In fact, I'm here to save you. Because for this reason, God sent me. In fact, more than just send, for this reason, God gave me to you. You see, it's in verse 17 that it talks about being sent. 
God sent his son, not to condemn the world, but to save it. But in verse 16, it's not just send, it's he gave his only begotten son, which makes Jesus the greatest gift that the greatest giver has ever given. And it was a gift of love. His only begotten son as a gift to every son and daughter that he hopes will be begotten unto him through Christ, through covenant. You understand this? This is, it's worth holding up a sign for at, at NFL games. Okay. This is a verse worth engraving upon the fleshy tables of the heart. It just requires us to believe in him. And if we do, we will not perish. Now again, verse 17 in some ways is even more powerful than verse 16. Because Jesus came to teach lessons like this to you, Nicodemus. So that you could learn from these things instead of being condemned by them. Jesus didn't come as the perfect standard to kind of look down his nose and mock us every time we fall short in our failed attempts at measuring up. No, he came down to be like us and to be with us so he could teach us and then bring us home. He brought the heavenly wisdom down and he'll bring earthly people up with him. It's not condemning to mark the perfect standard. Because Jesus doesn't hold us to it in the immediate term. He holds us to it and helps us get up to it. That's the beauty of his condescension. He's a mentor. He's a counselor. He's a guide. He is a rabbi. But one that's not just teaching the perfect standard and condemning everyone who falls short. Hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, Mr. Sanhedrin Pharisee. No. He's a rabbi meant to mentor you, trying to help you make the necessary changes in your life. He was <laughs> not God's proof that you're doing it wrong. He was God's gift in cleaning up after your mistakes so you could learn from them. That's the gift of God to us all. The lesson then continues in verse 18 and 19. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now Joseph Smith adds a phrase right there, which before was preached by the mouth of the holy prophets, for they testified of me. It's amazing how often in the JST, scripture comes up and prophecy comes up and prophets come up because that's how we come to know God. So you should know this, Nicodemus. It was preached. And all those scriptures that you claim to, to know so well and to hold in such high esteem, they testify of me. So make the transition from the middleman to the son of man himself. He goes on. This is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Is Jesus dropping a subtle hint about Nicodemus's nocturnal visit? Hmm, you seemed to love the darkness because that's when you came. But I'm the light of the world. So open your eyes, Nicodemus. This is so much like John chapter 1's discussion of light and darkness. And the light shining into the darkness, but the darkness comprehending it not. Do you comprehend, Nicodemus? Will you have the eyes to see? Because if not, 
then condemnation has come. You see, at the beginning of that phrase when he says, if you believe, you are not condemned. But if you don't believe, then you are condemned. It's like you take belief on one column and condemnation on the other. And then you get to hold the knot and decide which column to put it on. Because if I decide to put my knot with the belief that there's not belief, then what am I left with? Ah, condemned. But if I put my knot with condemned, then what am I left with over here? Oh, I believe. Wonderful. Then you're not condemned. But we do have to believe. We do have to exercise our faith. Otherwise, we're condemned. And in fact, the way he put it, you're condemned already. Interesting. It's, this avoids the thought of condemnation. Because, wait, wait, he didn't send his son to condemn the world. He sent it to, to save the world. Then why are you talking about condemnation all, all of a sudden? He didn't, I didn't come to condemn you, but if you don't believe, then, well, you're condemned. You just contradicted yourself. No, that's assuming that what I'm describing here is a threat, when it isn't. All I'm describing here is a consequence. You see, God doesn't have to come in externally and condemn us for things. Wickedness is its own punishment. It's just the natural consequence of living in the dark. You're going to bump up against things. You're going to crack your head on stuff because you don't see it. Elder Packer used to say that we are more often condemned by or punished by our sins than for them. You see, to be punished for your sins, or this language, to be condemned for your actions, that's God having to step in and ground you because what you did was wrong. But Jesus didn't come to do that. Instead, we are condemned already, which means my sins are... My wounds are self-inflicted, and my choices come with their own consequences. And the condemnation of bad choices has come already. And that's why Jesus came, to save us from those. To save us from the natural consequences of our own poor choices. That's God's gift of love. Quit thinking of God as a mean, vengeful judge, looking, or, a, or a rough professor looking for ways to fail the class. No, you're going to learn either, what, what kind of tuition do you want to pay? School of hard knocks? Uh, be condemned by your choices in the act of choosing those things? Because it's going to come. Or let me intercede and keep you from the natural consequences of your sins. So you're not condemned already. And I can hold those things at bay and say, oh, you see how this wave was about to crash on you? See how these consequences were about to come? Well, it's because this happened and this occurred. But if you just believe in me, I'll keep my hand here and turn back the wave. I will blow it off into oblivion. I'll absorb it, the shock and the crushing blow, and allow you to learn from your lessons instead of being condemned by them. For so God loved the world that he allowed that to happen. Please do not be condemned already. Just come to the light. Verse 20 and 21 then. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Again, in your case, Nicodemus, is this why you came under cover of darkness? You didn't want your fellow members of the Sanhedrin to reprove you? Well, I'm not reproving you. I'm trying to shine light. Because, as he goes on, he that doeth 
truth cometh to the light that his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought in God. Now that's a great principle. Uh, I've learned that even my dog knows this verse. Because when I am calling the dog in frustration or anger, like, I can't believe you did this, the dog won't come. It's so interesting to watch. And tail between legs or kind of almost in the fetal position, just kind of there on, its, on, on her bed, like, I know I did a bad thing. And I can tell you're not pleased because of the sound of your voice. And so I know you're calling me to come. I don't want to come. I've done evil. Whereas when my voice is cheery and happy and good girl and come, she comes running because she expects a treat. And so those that do truth come to the light because they want the light to shine on it. See, see the good thing I did? Now, the one danger of that is... Are we only avoiding light because of fear of punishment or only coming to the light because of hope of reward? Because that's still a lesser motivation than true love. The pure love of Christ wants to come even when we make mistakes so the Lord can help us learn from that. Definitely wants to come when we've done good things, but not so that we get patted on the back, but rather to let our light so shine that others may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. We come to the light, not to be seen, but so that other people can come with us and see and bask in that light themselves. And that's actually something that Joseph Smith changes in this verse in the JST. Very slight alteration, but I love it. Instead of it saying, he that doeth truth cometh to the light, in the inspired version, he that loveth truth cometh to the light. Even if that light is going to shine in some dark, deep recesses that I've always been ashamed to show, I love truth. Especially when it's capital T truth, because that's Jesus. I'll come to him and let him shine the light wherever it needs to. He can turn me inside out and help clean out those hidden corners. I love the light, and so I'll come. And then one other change in the JST. Instead of it saying at the end that they are wrought in God, namely those good deeds, instead Joseph's version says, And he who obeyeth the truth, the works which he doeth, they are of God. You see, it's not about me and letting my light shine. It's, it's letting people glorify God because the works that I'm doing are God's doings in me. He's the one at work here. Now, verse 22 to 24 comes next. And it begins with, after these things. So the story of Nicodemus is now over. It's just those first 21 verses of John chapter 3. But before you move on with Jesus' continuing ministry, can you just sit and ponder with Nicodemus for a little while? Can you be Nicodemus for a moment? And think about wind and think about breath and think about spirit and think about water. Think about being born again. Think about what the Lord is inviting us into and why he came in the first place. To make these lessons learnable and make his gospel livable. Jesus has just taught us something profound about himself and something profound about his Father. That if the ancient Jews were anything like us, in reading the Old Testament as harsh or vengeful or vindictive or overly just, 
Then the author of the Old Testament himself has come among them, come down from heaven to correct the misconception that all that God has done is out of love. Not to condemn, but to save. So trust the Savior. He's now among you. Well, that Savior is about to go forth and continue to teach. And so now as we turn to verse 22 to 24, after these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea. And there he tarried with them. Remember everywhere Jesus goes, the people want him to tarry? Well, he's doing it here. And he baptized. And if we take John's full explanation of it, that means he's baptizing unto repentance to prepare them for the kingdom of heaven. And there he is, its embodiment. Now, John also was baptizing in Anon near to Salim because there was much water there, which suggests baptism by immersion because you need a lot of water for that. And with John, they're baptizing and multitudes always seeming to come to him. Well, sure enough, it's still happening here. They came and were baptized. For John was not yet cast into prison. We keep seeing that. John's imprisonment is such a focal point as far as Jesus and his disciples are concerned, that often other events are mentioned in relationship chronologically to that event. Where here it'll say things like, well, he's not yet in prison, or others. Well, when he was, was in prison, so much of what we've already seen, this is, is key. It lets you know how much John meant to Jesus and his, all, and his other followers. But you see here Jesus baptizing. Hmm. And John baptizing too. Keep reading, but keep that in the back of your mind. Verse 25 and 26, Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And since purification is the purpose of Aaronic ordinances, right? The gospel of repentance, baptism by immersion, we confess our sins to the bishop because he is the head of the Aaronic priesthood. Aaronic ordinances are all about purification. Since John the Baptist is the poster boy for the Aaronic priesthood, then he's the poster boy for purification. No wonder this question about purifying arises. Now they came to John and said unto him, Rabbi, isn't that what Nicodemus just called Jesus? Now others are calling that John that same title. And then they say, He that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, so everybody now knows you're talking about Jesus, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. Hmm, how do you feel about that? He seems to be uh, sheep-stealing, as they sometimes say in the South. Uh, he's, the people are leaving you and coming to him. Mm, is, that, is that right? Now, speaking of, we've seen many a Joseph Smith translation edition so far today. Here's another one. Instead of it just being Jesus baptizes and all men come to him, this is even better, JST. Jesus, the same baptizeth, and he receiveth of all people who come unto him. I love that. It's one thing for everybody to come. It's another thing to make everyone who comes feel welcome. And Jesus had that gift. All comers policy. Just come. You come, I will receive you. That's why the Father sent me after all. No respecter of persons. But what about John's disciples who are respecting persons and are a little offended or at least wondering, John surely is offended, that people are starting to follow Jesus instead of you. I mean, he came to you. He lowered himself beneath you. You lowered him in the water. So doesn't that make you more important than him? <sighs> Absolutely not. Were you not close enough for me to hear me when I said to Jesus, you're the one that ought to baptize me? I know you were around to hear me shout to the gathering vipers, 
that someone after me is coming who is before me and I'm not even worthy to unlatch his shoe. This is him. So <laughs> I'm not jealous at all that people are starting to follow him at my expense. It's not my expense. It's my wish. I'm just the preparer of the way. This actually reminds me of Joshua and Moses in the Old Testament when Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua catches wind of it and rushes to Moses and says, you, you got to put a stop to this because they're not you. They can't prophesy. And what's Moses' response? Meek Moses? Oh, Joshua, envious thou for my sake? You don't have to get jealous for me because I'm not jealous for me. And John's saying the same. In fact, the way he puts it is even more powerful. Verse 27 to 29, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. So if you consider my influence a gift, good. It was a gift. But whenever there's a gift, there's a giver. And the giver gets all the credit. So my influence was a, a godly gift, and I'm not taking credit for it. I'm, I don't feel any ownership for it. I do feel a lot of stewardship for it. That's why I take it so seriously. But I'm just the steward, and the master has come. So he goes on, Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. I said that from the very start. I didn't want any confusion. I said that I am sent before him. I didn't want any success in my role to trick you into thinking that I was destined for some greater role. I wasn't. We some fa sometimes fall into that. Well, I was made a zone leader on the mission, so surely AP is next for me. I was the young man's president, so bishop's got to be in my future. Do we aspire to position? We shouldn't. John certainly didn't. Like, no, from the very start, I told you who I was and who I wasn't. And that was just as important. And then he says this, which should remind us of what we just learned about the wedding in Cana. John says, he that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. This, I love what John is saying here. There's so many examples of John's greatness. And one of the best examples of his greatness is that he never took his greatness seriously. He always saw himself in relationship to Jesus, and it was a far cry from the level the Lord was on. And so even when he's describing himself as the bride, as the fr best friend of the bride, I'm the best man. And the irony of the best man is the acknowledgement that you're not the best man at the wedding because you're not the bridegroom. You're not the one getting married. You're just the one that he is so grateful that you're there. You understand, to me, one of the greatest definitions of true friendship and true humility is rejoicing in someone else's success even more than if it were your own. Because if it was your success, your humility would keep you from getting too excited about it. But when it's somebody else's success, it's not about being humble. In fact, it's recognizing the humility of my friend. So I need to do over rejoice on their behalf. I'm going to be the one that shows just how incredible this thing is because he's not going to talk about it or she's not going to bring it up. I love that John describes himself as the best man by admitting he's not best at anything. In fact, have you ever heard the saying, always a bridesmaid, never a bride? 
And that's always said in kind of sorrow, like, how come I'm never the one getting married? And, and I get it. That, that, that can be hard. But to see John basically saying, I'm the bridesmaid, not the bride. Or in this case, I'm the, I'm the friend of the groom, not the groom himself. You know what's amazing about being the bridesmaid? It means what you're one of the best friends of the bride. And they want you there to rejoice with them. And they're inviting you to the marriage at Cana and they're multiplying wine so that you can rejoice alongside them. And especially the phrase, always the bridesmaid and never the bride. That means it keeps happening over and over and over again. Which again, if you take it in the negative way, how come nobody wants to marry me? Fine, that's hard. But take it in the positive way. I have so many friends with whom I can rejoice. And I have so many friends that want to rejoice with me on their greatest day. Their happiest moment they want to share with me. And I have so many friends that are like that. I'm ever the bridesmaid. Oh, someday I'll be the bride. In fact, I'll be marrying the bridegroom himself at the coming of Christ. In the meantime, I rejoice in him. The giver of every good gift. The gift of God himself. I love John for this. This humility, this recognition. It can all be summed up, that whole lesson, in the following phrase from verse 30. Short verse, but it speaks volumes. As John protests to those who think he ought to be protesting. No, he must increase, but I must decrease. That's humility. That's selflessness. That's discipleship. This is the aging all-star. When his replacement is drafted, rejoicing that he has someone to pass the mantle down to. Someone to mentor, someone to train. Occasionally that happens in professional sports. Sometimes I hear the opposite, sadly, where the, the, the veteran, still a little too proud of himself, will say, hey, it's not my responsibility to train my replacement. This guy's gunning for my job. The last thing I'm going to do is help him take it. No, he's on his own. Which suggests a certain selfishness on the part of that star athlete. And a thinking of, have you been doing all this just for yourself? Or are you trying to help the team? Because the best thing you can do for the team is decrease so that he can increase. And that's John to a T. If you are the outgoing bishop and someone is taking your place, if you're the outgoing release study president and someone's come to succeed you, then let them succeed. Think of successors rather than replacements and help your successors succeed. Let them increase as you begin to decrease and make it obvious so people, you're passing the baton and the baton is the people you've been carrying. You don't want them to drop to the track just because someone else's leg is about to begin. Then notice the next verse. Verse 31 to 33 John goes on, he that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly, and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. We're starting to hear a repeat of what Jesus was telling Nicodemus. John got it perfectly. Right? 
And again, part of the irony of this is he who came from heaven is above all, but yes, the Son of Man also descended below all. He brought heaven's secrets down to earth. But John then goes on, What he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. Which is so painfully ironic. No one knows more of heaven than Jesus does. He's the word of God who dwells among us. Then why don't we leave him when he comes? Why not accept the light when it shines in darkness? That's the bad news. But then here's the good news. The last line there in verse 33. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. That's a powerful passage. There are those who don't receive the testimony of Jesus, even when it's Jesus giving it to them. Then again, there are those who accept and receive the testimony. Let that faith work within them until it becomes a perfect knowledge. And if you receive that testimony, what have you done? Interesting description here. You've set to your seal that God is true, that he can be trusted, that he's deserving of our faith. And I've set that to my seal. Think about your insignia. Think about what you've etched into your ring that you stamp into. And that's your, giving it your seal of approval. You've stamped it. What, what do we stamp onto our coins? In God we trust. And we've set to the seal that in all of our mortal temporal transactions, it's really the God of heaven that we play, in whom we place our trust. We've set to our seal that God is true. I wish that testimony would, would influence our transactions. I wish they would make a difference in our relationships. I, if we have the testimony of Christ, then let that be emblazoned on everything that we stamp with our approval. That all that we do is in the name of the Son. That's something we promised to do. Keep reading. Verse 34 and 35. John continues, For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. And in Jesus' case, he doesn't just speak the words of God. He is the word of God himself. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. In other words, he doesn't have to meet it out and go, oh, just, just this much, you know, measure twice, cut once. That's, that's all the spirit we can give him. That's all he can handle. No, he can handle the whole thing. So give it all to him. Abundance, no limit. In fact, the JST clarifies it even more. When the King James says, God giveth not the spirit by measure unto him, the inspired version adds, for he dwelleth in him, even the fullness. It's all right there. Keep going. The Father loveth the Son. That keeps coming up in this beautiful chapter. From multiple witnesses. And hath given all things into his hand. Again, no limit to what God has given the Son. This is a blank check. Because God <laughs> trusts the Savior. The Father trusts the Son. And has committed all things into his hand. He's trying to do the same with us. Remember Oath and Covenant of the Priesthood? If you receive the, the, father's, or the, servant, the servants of Christ, you receive Christ. And if you receive Christ, you receive the Father. And if you receive the Father, you receive all that the Father has. That's what he's trying to give you. Exaltation to share his throne. That's the book of Revelation for you. And talk about a revelation here. Do, do you not understand how much the Father loves the Son? 
and the sun is here walking among us. The light is shining in darkness. So open your eyes and see you who have only a portion of the Spirit, the light of Christ within you, that lightens every man that cometh into the world. Let that light shine brighter and brighter unto the perfect day. Let your measure increase as he who has the Spirit without measure begins to pour himself out into you. That's the mission of John the Baptist. He's trying to help us grow up in God and receive a fullness of the Holy Ghost. We just have a portion now. There's no portion control when it comes to Jesus. And so the chapter ends. Verse 36, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Huh, kind of a rough ending there, John. Could you have softened that at all? Well, actually, yes. I mean, part of it is, is, is kind and, and soft already. If you just believe in the Son, you're going to have everlasting life. In fact, you have, you have a, the first taste of it already. Just like sin is its own consequence, righteousness is its own reward. And just like you're condemned already, well, you can already start feeling everlasting life begin to flow into you. Just don't, don't tap it. He wants to fill these stone pots to the brim. If you're growing, you'll get there. So don't damn yourself. Don't stop the flow of living water. Continue to grow in God. Believe on the sun. Now, there's a JST for this one too. And as in so many other places, the JST softens and exalts and expands the love of God even beyond what we see on the pages of the King James Version. I love this one. In the JST, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life and shall receive of his fullness. I mean, he's full. There's no measure. He wants to get us to that, to that full measure as well. This is grace for grace and progressing grace to grace until we receive a fullness through the grace of God. Keep going. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, JST, shall not receive of his fullness. You'll still see life in this life. You'll st still see eternal life in some degree of glory, but not the fullness of that glory, not the highest degree of the celestial kingdom. And then when the King James ends, but the wrath of God abideth on him, the JST ends, the wrath of God is upon him. This is when you don't want something to abide. Remember the Holy Ghost comes on us but abides on Christ? Well, flip it around. The wrath of God, that's going to come when I've, when I've brought it upon myself, the consequences of my own sin. But I don't want it to abide. Well, again, the JST softens that. It won't. It will not abide on you. It will only come not to condemn but to, give, to try to wake you up to the lesson you should be learning, allowing the natural consequences to crash upon you, and then throwing out the life raft. Actually, being the lifeguard who dives in and drags you back to shore. This is what Jesus came to do. And my prayer as we now turn from a man at night to a woman in the day is that we come to know Christ for who he came to be. The evidence of God's love for his children. A savior, not a condemner. The light of the world.
May we emerge from our darkness and see him and let him take us wherever his glorious heavenly wind chooses to blow. The breath of God continues to speak in John chapter 4. And this time, it's going to speak very specifically of himself. Jesus dropped all kinds of hints on Nicodemus in the last chapter. Uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And you picture just, please, do you see who I'm talking about? Uh, This is autobiographical. And does Nicodemus quite get it? Probably not. So he's going to be incredibly clear in the next chapter with a different audience. This isn't Coach's kid, so I'm not going to hold you to that standard. I'll come down even further to meet you where you are. And where are you? At a well in Samaria. John chapter 4 is the story of the woman at the well, and it is a true masterpiece of Scripture. I'm glad we know the story so well. Let's just make sure we understand the text equally well. Because the details it gives us, oh boy, is there insight here. So starting in verse 1 and 2 of John chapter 4, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples, now that's an interesting way to introduce the story of the woman at the well. Really, it's just introducing his departure from Judea to go down into Samaria. Okay, And that's where we'll meet this woman. But the way it's put here, no, 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 Jesus isn't going to baptize. I mean, he, he would never lower himself to that. Do the kind of worldly work of performing an earthly ordinance? Oh, far, be, far beneath him. No, nothing's beneath him. He does baptize. We actually saw that in John chapter 3. So why, this would confuse us if we didn't get a little help from, you guessed it, the JST. See, back in John chapter 3, verse 26, we just learned that Jesus baptized. It said, the same baptizeth. So let's read the JST of this. JST of John chapter 4, first four verses here. When therefore the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, and remember that that's going to freak out some of John's disciples. It doesn't freak out John at all. He's all for it. But it also freaks out the, the Pharisees. It freaks out people that didn't like John's baptism and certainly don't want Jesus' baptism. They don't want Jesus to increase. They're stoked that John is decreasing. They just want everybody to decrease. And so what are they going to do? When the Pharisees recognized what Jesus was doing, that he was even more successful than John was, they sought more diligently some means that they might put him to death. Here we are once again foreshadowing the death of Jesus as has been happening so often here at the beginning of the Gospel of John. Okay? The, the, the inspired version is truly inspired here for saying it. For many received John as a prophet, but they believed not on Jesus. That's, this is still the JST here, which is ironic because despite all of John's protests and Jesus' proclamations, oh, the, the people still want to hold on to John, hold on to the past. It's this misplaced allegiance, which is interesting, and John wouldn't have any of it. No, go to Jesus. Now, the Lord knew this, the JST continues, though he himself baptized not so many as his disciples, for he suffered them for an example, preferring one another. And that's where we pick back up with where we left off in the, in the King, King James Version. It's really interesting because it's, in a matter, it's, like, it's not so stark as, no, Jesus would not baptize anyone. It's like, no, he did baptize. We saw that in chapter 3, so there's nothing wrong with seeing it in chapter 4. But it is interesting that he didn't do it as often as his disciples did. 
Now, if you were going to be baptized for the remission of sins, wouldn't it be amazing to be baptized by the remitter of those sins? It'd be amazing. I'd be, I'd be proclaiming that every time. Well, who baptized you? Well, I was baptized by Jesus. I'm, my baptism must out, outrank yours. Well, if that's human nature, and Jesus knows human nature, then no wonder he doesn't baptize very often. Enough to show that he has power and authority to do so. Enough to show that he's willing to lower himself to our level as he lowers us in the, into the water. It does remember Nephi's words, to follow him into the water. But not so much that it's going to become some kind of arms race on whose arm lowered you down, and mine was better than yours. We see that problem in the, new, in the, gospel, excuse me, in the letters of Paul when people are like, well, I'm of Paul, Apollos, well, I'm of Paul, what about you? I'm of Peter, and we're comparing notes on whose kind of sub-disciple we are. Can we forget that and just realize we're all disciples of Christ? Whether it's Peter or Paul, or whether it's Latter-day Saint or Methodist or Catholic or Protestant, that we're all striving to follow Jesus? And we'll let him work out the differences as time goes on. But the, the, the struggle here is what the Pharisees are up to. We've got we to gotta get rid of John. That's going to be hard enough. But we've got to get rid of Jesus, especially before the, the center of gravity starts to shift to him and he gets all the increase. Because really the problem is if Jesus increases, we decrease. The Pharisees do. The Sadducees do. And we can't stand for that. So what are we going to do instead? Well, we're going to see that unfold in coming pages. But what's Jesus going to do? Well, I'll just get out of the whole, <laughs> the whole situation. And I'm going to go to a place, well, speaking of increasing and decreasing, people who you feel have decreased beyond anyone. We're going to go to see this with the Samaritans. How's that? Verse 3 and 4, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Now, the irony there is he didn't needs go through Samaria. Hardly any Jews did. I mean, surely that was the shortcut, and it was easier to go through Samaria, but who's going to want to do that? Because then you have to be around Samaritans. Yeah, yikes. So, what do you do? In days of racism, you cross the street to get away from someone not of your color, or Better yet, you force them to cross the street to stay away from you. In fact, not, we don't even want to share the same street with you. So go to your own ghetto, your own part of town, or your own state, or your own country. And we don't want difference. We don't want immigrants. We don't not want people that don't, don't fit like us. That's a horrible problem. And yet, through so much of human history, it seemed like it must needs be that way. Jesus didn't feel that way at all. For him, no, it must needs be that I go through Samaria. I'm going to flip the needs on this one. And the needs is not to be separate. It's to come together and be one. So if I'm going to try to dramatize that lesson, then yeah, I'm going to take the shortcut. Most Jews instead would walk, let's walk all the way from Jerusalem. Instead of going straight north to Galilee, the easy way, let's go down to the mountains to Jericho and then we'll cross the Jordan River and we'll go all the way around on the eastern bank until we get up to the Jordan area, excuse me, the Galilee area, and then come back west. Man, that's a long way around just because you want to avoid people that you think are beneath you. Jesus, who descended below all things, is going to go down to Samaria and prove to the Jews that the Samaritans aren't beneath them after all. 
That's a lesson that must needs be taught. If you remember from our study of the Old Testament last year and from our quick review of the Old Testament during our intertestamental lesson at the beginning of this year, remember why the Jews hated the Samaritans? When the Assyrian Empire came in to scatter the northern tribes, they left a few of the poorest, kind of the, uh, the leftovers, the residue, we don't want them to, to ruin the rest of the empire. We'll just leave a few token Jews there and then scatter the rest and then bring in other scattered peoples from conquered areas and bring them in. And then they'll mix and marry. And what's left? Oh, you're only half Jewish from your ancestry. And then half whatever else the Assyrians brought into the mix. You're a bunch of mutts up there. That's all. You're not purebred Jews like we are down in Judea. And that's why the Jews couldn't stand the Samaritans. They were so close and yet so far. They believed in the Torah just like we did, but uh, they had a temple there on Mount Gerizim, but it's not the temple in Jerusalem. You claim Jacob as your father, but you're only stepchildren. We're the true-blooded Israelites, so you stay away. There's actually something interesting called the narcissism of small difference. And it's people that have so much in common that blow out of all proportion the slight differences that set them apart. And it's narcissism that wants, it, that wants to make it happen. We can't handle being in the same melting pot as everyone else, so let's take something minor, something negligible, and blow that difference so out of proportion that it makes us feel like we're completely different species. And you have no business being anywhere near me Oh, that's a small difference. And it's narcissistic. I see it when I do interfaith work between Latter-day Saints and Evangelical Christians. And we make a huge thing out of small things. Because we want to be different. And you're not us. And we're not you. And wouldn't want to be. So much of that is Jews and Samaritans. And next we're going to fight over who's who. Okay? Jesus doesn't want to fight. He's going to come and shock everyone with his openness. In some ways, this is John's equivalent of what we saw in Luke chapter 4 last week when Jesus is popping the bubble of Jewish ethnocentricity and Jewish exclusivity by bringing up the fact that Elijah helped a non-Jewish widow and Elisha cleansed a non-Jewish leper. Whoo, fighting words. Well, let's see some fighting words here, which are meant to quell any fighting. Verse 5 through 8, the story begins. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Ah, and remember Jacob was a birthright son, though, though there was some controversy there with Esau. And Joseph was a birthright son, though there was some controversy there with his older brothers. So this story, even by setting, is a story about birthright blessings. And who has the birthright now? And who can trace their lineage to, to true ancestors? And who bears the legacy? Is it the Jews? Is it the Samaritans? Well, let's see. Here they are. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey. Yes, he gets tired and he gets hungry and he gets thirsty, just like everyone else. He's weary. He sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. That's high noon. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. 
course, his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. So everybody's hungry. Everybody's thirsty. But the disciples are going to go in and get some food. Jesus, I'm just going to sit out here for a while. I've got uh, a lesson to teach, and it needs to be a classroom of one. So scurry on. The student I intend to teach would be too shy to come to class if the other seats are already occupied. So go get some food. And I'm just going to sit here at the well at high noon, which is a lousy time to meet people, unless the person who's going to come knows that and didn't intend on meeting anyone there. Now, what is about to unfold is an incredible story that you're familiar with. But if you're a Jew reading this story, then you read everything in the New Testament with your eyes on the old. And as soon as you hear a story about a well, what starts popping into your head? You see, in the Old Testament, wells were the best place to find a woman. And better said, to find a wife. So this puts this story, in a way, in a marriage context. If you remember what Abraham's servant does as he heads off to the old ancestral homeland to find a wife for Isaac, he goes to the well, and there comes Rebecca, ready to serve and give a stranger drink. That proves her worthiness to enter Abraham's family. Uh, if you fast forward and see Jacob going back to similar territory, and who does he find at the well? He finds Rachel, who also serves, and he serves her. And there's this reciprocity, and a relationship begin to develop, and it begin, and there comes the house of Israel. Okay, so it's amazing to see what happens at wells in terms of a place of romance. I always joke with my institute students that welcome to the well. The modern-day equivalent of Abraham or Jacob's well is right here at the Institute. Best place for you to meet someone that you might woo and marry. Uh, at BYU, that's, those are the happy, happy hunting grounds as well. So here we are at Jacob's well. What is, what is being suggested here? Is this a proposal of sorts in which Jesus, the king of the Jews, is allowing the Samaritans to come into the family? Is a relationship of love and trust being offered here? It's amazing to think of that. Now, there's another thing to think of about wells, because wells were places of romance, but they were also places of conflict. Oh, well, love and war, I guess they'll go hand in hand sometimes, right? Well, in this case, think about Abraham and Abimelech, as they were the servants of the two were fighting over a well. Think about Jacob and the Philistines. Jacob kept sending his servants to dig more and more wells because the Philistines kept taking them or filling them in. Because in the Middle East, water is such a rare resource, it becomes a very precious one, one worth fighting over. Now, does that sound like a good place for a Jew and a Samaritan to meet? Are we going to be fighting over the well? Are we going to be fighting over the water? Which will this be? Will it be love or war? <laughs> Are we gonna, is it going to be conflict or a marriage proposal? One other Old Testament example to think about is Hagar, who was looked down upon as not the first wife, someone who was, there was some tension between Sarah and Hagar. Sarah cast, or Sarah cast Hagar out. We don't want, you can't be a part of our family. Get out. And Hagar goes and feels forsaken, feels forgotten. 
And where, does she, where is she comforted? Where is she reassured? At a well, where an angel appears and reassures her that she's not forgotten at all. In fact, that God sees her in her circumstance and has a plan for her as well. And what does Hagar name the well as a result? She ends up calling it Beer Lahai Roy. And beer means well. Lahai Roy means him who liveth and seeth me. This is the well of a God who sees. The, of a God who lives. A God who is aware of me even in my nothingness. Even feeling forsaken and forgotten, God is aware of me. A similar thing happens actually a second time for Hagar later on. That's how important she is in the eyes of God. Even though she's, wait a minute, that's the, the mother of Ishmael. Those are the Arabs. Those are the Muslims. I mean, how can we? Yeah, God cares about all of his kids. Jew, Gentile, Jew, Samaritan, Christian, Jew, Muslim, Jew, Christian, Buddhist, Hindu, atheist, you name it. Can we meet around, around a well sometime and offer each other living water? That's what's happening here. Now, to dramatize this one step further, this is John 4, which comes right on the heels of John 3. That's how the numbers work. But think about the main story in 3 about Nicodemus and his conversation with the Lord. And the main story in John 4, the woman at the well and her conversation with Jesus. Water will become a, mo a motif both times. Born of water, Nicodemus. Living water, woman at the well. But think about the differences between these two. It's amazing. In literary studies, this, this is called a foil. A foil is the sword you use when you're fencing. And when you put them up on the wall, they usually cross each other, kind of forming an X. And a literary foil is when one story is put put against another story, and they cross each other in such a way that their differences are dramatized. And there might be no better literary foil in the book of John than this one. John 3 to John 4, Nicodemus to the woman at the well. Here's a chart for you. John 3 is Nicodemus. We know his name. John 4 is the woman at the well, whose name we never know. I mean, after all, names are given to important people, not the forgotten not the cast-offs of society, and we're seeing that difference dramatized. Nicodemus is a male. The woman at the well is a female. Nicodemus is a Jew. The woman at the well is a Samaritan. In fact, Nicodemus isn't any old Jew. He's a respected leader among the Jews. And this woman is not any old Samaritan. She is a despised outcast, even from among her own people. Nicodemus's people look up to him. This woman's people look down on her. After all, Nicodemus is a Pharisee, which is the symbol, I mean, the embodiment of purity, obedience, integrity. Whereas this Samaritan woman, whether or not she was guilty of all the things that people assumed her of being, she was considered immoral or would have been based on a detail about her life that we'll see shortly. In Nicodemus's case, this is an urban story. And in the woman at the well's case, this is a rural story. Outside of town, oh, out there by the well. Nicodemus came when? At night. And when did the woman at the well come? At, during the day. 
In fact, high noon, the sixth hour. Of course, that's, that sunlight will still be eclipsed by the light of the world that's been sitting there waiting for her. And what kind of water will she draw? Will it be water to parch her thirst spiritually? Will it be water that brings life into her dead places? Will it be waters of rebirth like he was talking to Nicodemus about? Beautiful, beautiful foil. But watch the story unfold. Verse 9, Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, because remember, she, he started the conversation just a verse ago. Give me to drink. It's the first thing he, that came out of his mouth, and he's speaking to her. Her response, which you would expect if you know the history between these two people, she says, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which I'm a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. You can picture her sarcasm dripping off her lips like you. Jews have no business, no dealings with us lowly Samaritans. Surprised. I mean, the word itself would probably never escape your lips. I'm surprised that anything did, that you would breathe in my direction. <laughs> picture Jesus going, oh, you have no idea where the wind blows and where it's coming from and where it's blowing to. But she's right in terms of her assumption, at least would have been if it had been any other Jew there. I don't know exactly how she knows off the, off, the, off the bat that he's a Jew, but there's some recognition here and probably some outward visible sign that's like, yep, you're not one of me. You're different. You look different you, or you sound different. There's something about you that tips me off that we shouldn't get along. And as far as she's concerned, that's all she needs to know about him. You're a Jew. End of discussion. And why would you even start the discussion when you ought to know that I'm a Samaritan? Why would you speak to me? And it's not just Jew to Samaritan. It's male to female. There's all kinds of odd uh, identities interacting here. But what's interesting about stereotypes is you don't have to fit those molds. And Jesus certainly didn't. And picture Jesus just smiling and saying, oh, I know, you're right, I'm a Jew, but I'm not that kind of Jew. When people say to me, oh, you're a Latter-day Saint? You guys are the ones that think you're better than everybody else. I'm like, well, you're right, I'm a Latter-day Saint, but I'm not that kind of Latter-day Saint. Or when people say, oh, you guys are the ones that are always judgmental and holier than thou. I'm like, oh, I've heard that, sadly. Experienced it a time or two. There are some cultural things about my church that, yeah, I'm not too proud of. Just like there's probably some cultural things about your church or your culture that you're not proud of either. In fact, why don't we both overcome culture, shall we? And I'll be a Latter-day Saint that's not that kind of Latter-day Saint. And you can be a Catholic that's not that kind of Catholic. Or you can be a Protestant that's not that kind of Protestant. Or an evangelical that's not that kind of evangelical. Or a Muslim that's not that kind of Muslim. Or an atheist that's not that kind of atheist. Are you getting the sense that we don't have to fit the molds that people assign to us? That we can be fellow human beings, both of whom experienced thirst, as far as I can tell, and therefore came to the same well to draw the same water. What do you say? What do you say we step outside the molds that have been cast for us and get to know each other on an individual level? So it's not just a Jew and a Samaritan, but it's Jesus of Nazareth, 
What, what was your name? Dear sister, here from Samaria. Those are the kinds of conversations that break down walls and end up building bridges. So that, this is a good example of interfaith dialogue at its finest, at least on Jesus' side. The woman's not quite there yet. That's okay, give her time. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said unto her, Oh, if thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, oh, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. This is such a beautiful response to her. Kind of flippant, like, you shouldn't even be talking to me, and I'm certainly not going to talk to you. Oh, if only you knew me for who I am. In fact, if only you knew the gift of God and how generous he is in giving them. For God so loved the world, including the Samaritan parts of it, that he gave his only begotten son. And do you know the gift of God that's speaking to you, that's staring you in the face? If you would have known, in fact, if you would have known, you wouldn't have just given me what I asked for. You would have been the one asking me to give you things that you can't access. There's something beautiful here about, well, a couple of things, about how we view God, first of all. Do we underestimate his generosity? Do we not recognize the gift? Do we not know the gift of God that is all around us, there for the asking? Ask and ye shall receive. Seek and ye shall find. Knock, it'll be open to you. That's a generous God. Do we know it? How often do we suffer and forget to pray for deliverance? How often do we sin and forget to pray for mercy? Do you not know the gift of God? Why is it that priesthood holders almost have to offer them, would you like a blessing instead of, oh yeah, I guess I can get one of those, can't I? If you know, a good friend of mine just asked me for a blessing. He knew the gift of God. And it was God, not me. It's just, hey, you're my ministering brother. Will you please come and give me a blessing? I could use one. And what a privilege it was for me to feel God's love for this wonderful brother whom I admire. He knows the gifts of God. He's helped God give them to many other people, including me. And so he just asked for it. But here's, the, and that's the vertical side. How well do you know God and his gifts? But there's also something about the horizontal, because as far as she's concerned, there's just some Jew in front of me. This is a horizontal com uh, conversation. And what's Jesus saying about that? Oh, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for help. Because too often when someone comes to us in need, we only see their need. We don't recognize their offering. We think, oh, you're in a position of need. I'm the upper and I'm going to lower myself to give something to you. And what we fail to recognize in that moment is that they have gifts to give as well. When you are serving food at the food bank, Imagine if someone, if a homeless brother or sister looked at you, not in pride, calling you out, but in humility and in, in a sorrow, almost sorry for you, but not in a condescending way. If you knew who I was, I have gifts to give to. I'm lacking the gift you have, namely the food, or in this case, water from the well. But you're lacking things I have to give. I see that often among immigrants that had incredible professions in their home country, 
but for whatever reason, education didn't transfer or credentials didn't, didn't cross the border. And to have janitors in the United States that were doctors in Guatemala, to have people looked down upon because they can barely speak English, that were literature professors at their university in India. The poor have riches to share. The uneducated, from your perspective, can educate us in all kinds of things we need to learn. And I think we can do a lot more to recognize the gifts that other people have. So this is section 46 of the Doctrine and Covenants, that God makes sure that everyone has a gift and that nobody has them all, which means we need each other. So may we recognize the gifts other people have to give us, even when we're the ones that are momentarily giving them the gift. Verse 11, the woman, her turn to respond. She says to him, Sir, which is better than you Jew, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. There was a measurement taken in 1935. I'm not sure if there's been others since, but this is the one piece of data I found, that the depth was 135 feet. Oh yeah, this is a deep, deep well. And so she asks, since this well is so deep and you don't have anything to draw with, from whence then hast thou that living water? And then an interesting follow-up question. Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? You think you're better than Jacob? To which the Lord could have said, well, if you're asking honestly, then yes. Uh, it's like he'll say later, People cared about the wisdom of Solomon. A greater than Solomon is here. Uh, you're impressed with Jacob. Well, Jacob was impressed with me. I'm the one who gave him this land, including this little parcel where the water flows. So yes, I am greater than Jacob, although we don't have to get into that. We're not going to try to compare ancestries here. I'm trying to get past that, okay? Who has real claim to Jacob? who has real claim on this land that Jacob gave to Joseph. It, this is such an old story of fighting over things. But those are fighting over finite kinds of things. And what I'm offering is infinite. There's enough to go around. So I'm not worried about that. But what you said about the, the depth of the well and the fact that I don't have anything to draw water out of, physically speaking, literally speaking, you're right. So yeah, I could use a little help. But what's interesting here, symbolically, is I think we do this often with God. First, we're afraid to ask Him for any help. We don't think that we're the type that He'd give it to, okay? We don't recognize that this is a generous God who loves giving gifts. But then when we actually do come to ask Him for something, it's amazing how quickly we give Him all kinds of excuses to not come through for us. Now, if that's submission on our part, if that's a, nevertheless, not my will but thine be done, then we're, we're quoting a high authority if that's how we feel. But if it's a lack of faith that's getting us to say, but yeah, you probably don't want to do that because after all, the well is deep. And after all, you probably don't have anything that can reach that far. So don't worry about it if you can't perform that miracle or come through in my time of need. Submission and lack of faith are two very different things.
even though they both can sound like we're going to let God decide what he wants to do. Beware about giving God, making, God, making excuses that God himself doesn't want to make and doesn't need to. Because the well is deep, I know. Guess who the source of the water is? Guess who, guess who made it that deep? I know the land, I created it. And doesn't have anything to draw it out with? That's not going to be the problem. You should see what I can do with water, to wine, uh, or lack of water. Uh, what I can do with bread or lack thereof. It's the supply to meet any demand is not my, not my problem. Uh, I don't have a weakness there. But because you have something you can use, I'm going to allow you to use it. It's like Jesus filling the boats, filling the nets with fish like we saw last week, to give the disciples something to sacrifice as they left their nets to follow him. You have something that I'm not going to make for myself. I'm giving you a chance to serve and to serve even me. And when you think about it, the kind of water I really have in mind, no, no length of rope is going to be able to reach it. Even you with your, your, your long cord and your bucket at the bottom, it's not going to get to the depths where, that I'm talking about. In fact, there's a great verse in Proverbs. We quoted one earlier in Nicodemus's situation. Here's one in the woman at the well's situation. This is Proverbs chapter 20, verse 5. Counsel in the heart of man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Uh, what I'm trying to give you is beyond your reach, beyond mortal means to acquire. But if you'll come to me, my redeeming reach, there's nothing that lays outside it. So let me lower down the bucket. Let me bring up from the depths an understanding that you don't have. Let me bring down from heaven something that even mighty Nicodemus isn't high enough to reach. It's interesting that if Nicodemus is feeling high, Jesus is saying, it's, the wind blows still higher, and I'll come down from heaven to bring truth to you. And if this Samaritan woman is feeling low, then, let, then I've got depths of understanding that, that, I, that I'm far beneath what you could ever descend to. And I will send down my bucket to bring up wells of living water. That's what he gets at when you get to verse 13 and 14. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water, the kind you're describing, shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. You see, my dear sister, what you're offering is passing. What I'm offering is permanent. Drink mortal water. You'll thirst again. All the solutions the world offers are temporary at best. And sadly, often they end up leaving you thirstier. It's like you're giving salt water and I'm giving fresh. Yours, at best, people will thirst again. You're licking your lips and I'm offering you chapstick. <laughs> because licked lips, it soothes things for a time, but then it, the problem just comes back. Don't plaster over the problem. Let's solve it. Don't band-aid if you need surgery. And specifically, what he's talking about is, it's more than just a well. It's a spring. 
And spring really is living water, moving water, always pure, ever flowing. And one other thing that he adds, it shall be in him, that kind of well, that kind of spring, springing up within him unto everlasting life, never thirst again. Permanent changes, a rebirth, something just as dramatic as what I was talking to Nicodemus about. Now, it's interesting because when I was in Israel, uh, and they would talk about walking where Jesus walked, and the irony there is they'd say, oh, today I walked where Jesus walked. And usually it was like, well, I walked probably like 20 feet above where Jesus walked over all these other layers of civilizations that came and went and crumbled below. There's a few places, like some steps up to the temple that, yes, Jesus would have walked on those steps. And I think something like a well, that doesn't get, typically get buried over. And it also, it doesn't move. Uh, when, when Catholics and Protestants fight over, is it the Church of the Holy Sepulchre or is it the Garden Tomb, for example? And where were these different locations where Jesus did different things? Well, the nice thing about a well, yeah, it just kind of stays where you put it. Which makes it all the more ironic when Jesus says, this well is in you. Wait a minute. If that's a personal well, then it's a portable well. And wherever I go, I've got it with me. Yeah, wouldn't that be nice? You didn't have to make this trek all the way out here to Jacob's well from your little town of Sychar. That'd be nice. Well, that's impossible, though. Oh, no. Not the kind of water I'm giving you. You know another thing that doesn't move, that's not portable? Are trees. That's why we talk about them being firmly planted. You'd have to uproot them to get them to move. But in doing that, they die. Well, not the kind of tree God wants you to plant. Because in Alma 32, when you're planting the word as a seed, and it begins to take root, and now you know it's a good seed, and it begins to grow. You know what kind of tree it was the whole time? Go back to Alma 32, and by the end of the chapter, it's the tree of life. Wow. You mean the whole time Lehi was trying to get to the goal, that goal was the tree of life, and where was the tree? It's inside you. Grow it in your own heart, and wherever you go, you've got the tree with you, including all of its glorious, precious, delicious fruit. I love that God can take the permanent and non-portable and make it equally permanent, but portable and personal for you. And this source of living water, this source of the fruit of the tree of life, can go anywhere you go. We talk about going to the temple because that's where things can happen. And we'll see Jesus have a similar conversation in just a moment. But if Paul says your body's a temple, if, if, if we are the temple of God and the Spirit can dwell in us, then I have everything I need right here. And that's what the Lord is offering. Well, in verse 15, that perks up the woman's ears. Uh, since making this trek out here, which is way easier than the trek back now that my buckets are full, uh, my pitchers, then, and high noon of all times, then give me some of that. The woman says to him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Because, man, your way sounds way easier than mine. Well, you might want to rethink that. <laughs> In some ways, the Lord's way is infinitely easier than the world's. But in other ways, it provides its own kinds of challenges. You have to learn to draw 
water in a different way. And perhaps with all of that in mind, Jesus changes the subject slightly and says to her, go call thy husband and come hither. Now, that's not the invitation that the woman wants, and we'll see why in just a second. But I wonder if Jesus is hinting at something bigger here. Once the woman finally realizes, you do have something to give, she also needs to realize, yes, I do, and it's not intended for you alone. The moment we recognize the gifts of God is the moment we ought to start looking around for people to share them with. Isn't that what Lehi did? As soon as he eats the fruit, his immediate thought was, my family needs this. Uh, as soon as Paul is converted, as soon as Alma and the sons of Mosiah are converted, it's who can I share this with? And it changes everything. And I love the thought of this woman. It's like, fine, you got it. Nice. You know I have a gift to give. And you're asking me. You're finally asking me. I started by asking you. But me asking you to do something for me, quote unquote, was only my excuse to engage in conversation. At the end of which, it'd be you asking me for the things that I have to offer. That's the case in every mission call, in every call to serve, in every... Any time... God seems to be imposing upon us, asking us for something. It's his excuse to start a conversation in which he wants to give us all he has. So accept callings. <laughs> Go on that mission. Let him ask of you things. He'll end up giving you more than you ever gave to him. In fact, we never actually see her give him water, which is what he came for. It's so interesting. Uh, it's just the conversation starts to unfold. I assume that she probably gave him something at some point, but it doesn't say it in the text. Instead, it's, I've got something for you. And once she realizes it and wants it for her, no, go find your husband. Go bring him. Now, she doesn't like that, and we're going to see it in just a second, because <laughs> funny you'd mention my husband. There's a story there that I really don't want to tell. And the Lord knows the story already. But that tells us something also. We need to talk about that, as painful as it is. And in some ways, that tells us something else about God's calls to serve. When he calls us to serve others, that's also simultaneously a call to repent ourselves. Even by just hearing the word husband, pricks her conscience and she knows she's got some changing to do. And when you're invited to give a priesthood blessing, is it a gentle call to repent? Can I be cleaner? When you are called to serve in a calling, is it an invitation to up our game and become a little better than we've been? I, I do believe that every call to share the gospel is a call to repent, and I hope we're heeding them. Heeding both of them, <laughs> repenting and sharing the gospel. Well, her repentance is going to come first, or at least her confession. It's an interesting one to start. You see it in verse 17. The woman answered and said, I, I have no husband, which technically was true, just not the whole truth. And Jesus wants the whole truth. He's going to coax it out of her. In fact, he's going to fill in some of the blanks himself. Jesus says unto her, Ah, thou hast well said, I have no husband. <laughs> For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. So, yeah, technically, yes, in that sayest thou truly. And the woman then says to him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Which is, to me, absolutely hilarious. 
It's like, yikes. Okay, uh, you know a lot more than I gave you credit for. Because guilty is charged. Technically, I was not lying. Uh, I just wasn't being completely forthcoming. I'm not married. Yeah, you've been overmarried through much of your life, and now you're undermarried, but still with someone. In fact, it's only that last one that would be problematic. Now, if she's living out of wedlock with someone and, and committing fornication in that case. The tricky part about these other five marriages, how on earth? Well, some immediately jump to conclusions and say, well, were those marriages? Is this uh, some kind of serial adulterer? Uh, and drop one husband and then pick him another and then the next and the next and the next. And now she doesn't even <laughs> cut to the chase and we don't even need a marriage ceremony. Let's just live together on, with, without any of it. I guess that's a possibility. The other possibility, though, is this is a virtuous woman who was married. And most, most likely, if it's this many, this could very well be the law of leveret marriage uh, playing out before us. Remember Judah and Tamar? And Tamar marries the first son of Judah and he dies. And so she marries the second son of Judah and he dies. And she's supposed to marry the third son of Judah, but Judah won't let her. Was, 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 excuse me, was Jacob the only one who had 12 sons? It's a big family. Well, in the ancient Middle East, like many Latter-day Saint families today, and many Catholic families for that matter, they're big families. You could end up having a lot of sons, maybe even five of them. And perhaps it's one of those stories where it's leverant marriage and through no fault of her own does she keep getting remarried. In fact, it's heartbreak after heartbreak after heartbreak. Loss after loss after loss as she ends up marrying every brother in the family. Again, that's only a possibility, but is this a wounded woman? Is this a broken heart? And now anyone that'll take me, anyone that will try to provide, it's tough to be a widow, especially five times over in the ancient world. Jesus knows it and doesn't condemn her for it. There's some hints of the woman taken in adultery and Jesus not condemning, but recognizing the situation that she's in. And, and we need to bring this up. If we're going to heal the wound, then you've you got to stop hiding it from me. Fully expose it to the light of day. Don't hide it in the darkness, Nicodemus, woman at the well, you and me. But what's interesting as far as the woman's reaction is concerned, first, this admission like, oh, <laughs> you know everything. You must be a prophet. Speaking of worship, and it's like, wait, wait, what? Speaking of worship, where's this coming out of? Uh, it doesn't matter. I'm trying to change the subject. Can't you see that? And I get that sense from this woman uh, of, I, I love the flow in the, the scene in, 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 Cho, in The Chosen. It, it, it flows beautifully as you pick up these parts of the conversation. But as we see it simply on the page, it does seem like a, a dodge and duck. And like, can we just change what we're talking about? This is not about me. Let's, let's, get, let's get, back, get back to ground level of Jews versus Samaritans, shall we? Where this conversation began. It's like, does she feel accused by what Jesus brought up? Even though there doesn't seem to be a hint of accusation, it's just like, this is the situation you find yourself in. I get it, okay? I already knew that before. I knew, it before, I knew what you were before I picked you up. I knew the situation even before I started the conversation. So I'm not scared off by that. 
I'm not scared off by possible immorality. I'm not scared off by, by absolute Samaritanism. But if she's feeling looked down on, then no wonder her mind reverts back to the fact, oh yeah, I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew. So she brings this up in verse 20 and 21. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. This is Mount Gerizim, which actually holds a lot of spiritual significance to the Jews, not just to the Samaritans. That's where, where uh, Joshua brought the people, and that was the Mount of Blessings that they would shout, six tribes, over against Mount Ebal, which is the Mount of Curses, shooting, uh, shouting back. Jews would have loved and held in high res, uh, re regard Mount Gerizim. But since they didn't want Samaritan territory, then yeah, we'll leave, we'll, we'll cede Gerizim to the Samaritans themselves. And it now becomes the Samaritans' holy mountain. They even build a temple there. So as she describes it, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And ye say, you Jews, that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now Jesus saith unto her, Ah, woman, which again is a term of respect, same thing he called his mother at the wedding, so milady, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You see, I've got more to say about this, but pause for just a moment because I need you to understand that worship is less about where and far more about how. I'm going to say that in just a moment. It's far more about why are you doing it just to be seen of man or to be seen of God? And in fact, the biggest one of all, even more than the why or the how, is the who. Who are you worshiping? Because if you knew who I was, we'd be having a different conversation. But don't limit yourself to location. If you remember Alma's mission to the Zoramites, and there they are on their Ramiumptum in their synagogue, raising hands to heaven, saying, We're grateful that we're better that we're grateful we're better than everybody else. Including our own people that we consider too poor to come and worship in the synagogue they built with their own hands. Oh no, that's the labor. Get them out. Even within certain groups. Again, the narcissism of small difference. We're all Zoramites, yeah, but you're the poor ones, get out. We're all Samaritans, yeah, but you're the, hmm, probably the immoral one. No wonder she's going out at high noon, when that's not the, the time to go draw water. It's the hardest time, but in her case, it's also the time that's least likely to find other people present that would be judging her. Well, she assumes Jesus is judging, and so let's judge worship, shall we? And Jesus says, let's not even do that. The day will come that where won't matter. Those poor Zoramites thought that the synagogue was the only place they could worship and thought that on the Sabbath was the only time that they could do it because the people at the, at the Ramiumptum, that's all they did. The only time they even mentioned God was in that one place on that, uh, at that one time. And God is not to be confined in those ways. I'll dramatize that in just a moment, but let's again shift things to a talk about how, away from the talk of where. Now, I do need to say quickly there's a contrary here, because sometimes where does matter. What had Jesus just done in chapter 2? He cleansed the temple. He cared about that where. And even though here he's saying, oh, the time will come that it doesn't even matter in Jerusalem. Well, yeah, because the temple's going to be destroyed. And there's nothing left. 
There's a contrary between the general and the specific, the, between the universal, that the presence of, that the Spirit of God can fill, and the very specific, where he puts a finger on the map and says, that's the place for my name. And temples are like that. There are some diseases, for example, that all you need is bed rest, and you can lay down anywhere you want. But there are, others, there are some other surgeries where you have to go to the, the hospital and in the operating room, because that's the only place where the equipment and the expertise is found to help you in your condition. So what we see here is not Jesus just giving a categorical, there's no need for places of worship. I sometimes hear that from well-meaning evangelical friends that say, there's no need for a temple. To which I want to say, well, that, Jesus had some strong feelings about the temple. He considered it not only his father's house, but his own, and he cleansed it. Even in its apostate state, there's something about that place that needed to be preserved and even purified. But for this woman's sake, in this circumstance, let's not talk about where. Let's talk about how. So verse 22 to 24, he does so. He says to her, ye worship, ye know not what. <laughs> This is like Paul uh, in Acts chapter 17, this altar to the unknown God. And he whom ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. So uh, these, this could come across as fighting words. But instead, picture a, a better tone. This is calm Christ saying, you know, my dear sister, my lady, I, I wonder if you even know what you worship. If you're too focused on where you're doing it. My people are the same in many ways, unfortunately. But ye worship, ye know not what. He then adds, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Now to that point, it's like, oh great, now you're ripping apart Samaritans and Jews. No, I'm not trying to do this mean-spiritedly. But there is a difference. Uh, there's apostasy in Israel too, and I'm trying to clean that up. But Jerusalem still is the house of the Lord. I just cleansed it, okay? And Samaritans need to understand that the true place of worship, it's not high places, it's not the priests of Baal, it's not golden calves that Jeroboam set up in Dan and, and, and Bethel. No, there is a place that God has in mind, and it's his place of holiness. It's the temple in Jerusalem. Salvation is there. But, he continues, the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. That's the how we're looking at. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. He then adds an interesting line that Latter-day Saints sometimes struggle with, where he says, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And again, the Latter-day Saints are left. But God isn't just a spirit. You're right. He's not just a spirit. But he is a spirit that also has a body, like the rest of us are. Like Jesus, the Word, Spirit, made flesh and take flesh upon him. In fact, lay it down in death, but then take it back in the resurrection. The thought of Jesus as a, a, a God being spirit and flesh together shouldn't scandalize anyone since the resurrection was a physical thing to him and he made sure people knew it. Handle me and see. Spirit hath not flesh and bones as you see me have. Watch me eat with you. Several occasions that 
This is a bodily, physical resurrection. I'm spirit, but I'm more than spirit. I'm spirit and flesh. And that's the same with God. In fact, the JST, I mean, you could, you could explain it that way if you choose. The JST uh, changes things entirely and simply says, not rather than God is a spirit, it says, For unto such hath God promised his spirit, and they who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So that avoids the issue entirely. But even if we stick with King James, it's interesting in context. Again, this is a woman who's, who cares more about specific places. And especially in so much of Canaanite religion and, and Greece, Greek religion and Roman religion and Egyptian pantheons and so, so much of, of ancient Near Eastern religion, it's an idol. So that's something physical, tangible. It's a graven image. It's attached to a specific location, a provincial pantheon. Uh, and God has neighbors, and this is the area I rule over, but that's the area rule, you rule over, and each group has its own God. And Jesus is trying to break down that mentality. Dear sister, it's not about Samaritan religion versus Jewish religion. It's not about a graven image or some kind of physical idol. It's way more spiritual than that. So can we talk more about the spiritual side of God? The fact that the Holy Spirit can fill all things, that it isn't confined. Now, God himself is spirit and body. I've come to embody that myself. And I'll take the physical resurrection incredibly seriously. But this is not a conversation about the nature of God. This is a conversation about the nature of worship. And since you are confining your worship to specific places, let me blow off the doors and talk about the spiritual nature of worship, including the spiritual nature of the God that we worship, so that you don't confine Him to something so limited. So even in, in context, we have nothing to be ashamed of as, as far as our knowledge of God in, a, in resurrected form. But notice what He says here. Again, the focus is on how we worship and who we worship, not where. And the focal point he gives us is spirit and truth. He says it twice. That's how we're supposed to do it. Now, in you know me, I'm always talking about proving contraries. And in this one passage, I see three different contraries being proven. One is the contrary of what Paul calls speaking the truth in love. Because Jesus is speaking some truth, and it can hurt. Salvation is of the Jews. We are God's chosen people. And yes, you have watered things down and diluted your discipleship through the Assyrian invasion. No fault of your own, but that's where you're at, okay? You inherited a degree of apostasy. You're doing amazing things within it. As you try to build a temple and you hold to the Torah, and we're so close. More close than we are far away. But salvation is of the Jews. I don't say that to condemn you. When I say you worship, you know not what. I'm trying to make you aware of those things you don't know so you can know them. I'm speaking the truth, which could hurt, but I'm doing it in love, which is meant to alleviate the hurt. That's one thing. That's hard to do, really hard to do. Most of us would either say... You don't even know what you're talking about. You don't know what you worship. Salvation's of the Jews, and we're right, and you're wrong, and leave it at that. And, and yeah, you've left it. They've left you. 
or I'm not even going to bring that up. I'm either going to maximize the differences or minimize the differences because uh, I either I want to win this fight or I don't want there to be a fight at all. Jesus is trying to strike a balance. So, speaking the truth in love is one contrary. A second is the exclusivity versus inclusivity contrary. It's similar to what we just said as far as the content of what Jesus was teaching. I'm just bringing up his tone as far as doing it lovingly. But remember what Jesus said to Abraham. Well, I guess it was Jesus. It was Jehovah. Uh, What Jehovah said to Abraham, In thee and in thy seed, that's exclusivistic, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That's radically inclusive. And... Jesus is trying to balance the two. He's holding to the fact that Jerusalem's where the temple is, and salvation for now is with the Jews. It's my, they're my covenant people. But I want you to come and join us. That's the exclusivity in pursuit of inclusivity. I'm, yes, I'm a Jew, but I'm talking to a Samaritan. I'm talking to you, and I want to talk to them all. I'm going to expand beyond Jews onto Gentiles. I want to, I'm the savior of the world, and it's the world that I care about. So let's prove that contrary. And then the third contrary, which is the one he specifically raises here, is how do we worship? And the contrary there is in spirit and in truth. And I think we could use a little more of both. But the interesting thing is, speaking of the narcissism of small difference, to compare Latter-day Saint Christians and Evangelical Christians, and I would consider myself an Evangelical Latter-day Saint Christian because I love the good news and, and I'm an Evangelical about it. Okay? But when I do interfaith work with, inter- with Evangelical Christians, this is an interesting passage because I've worshipped with them in their churches and they've come and worshipped with me in mine. Uh, often when Evangelical student groups will come, we do dialogue with Latter-day Saint students and Evangelical students. But if the, the visiting group was here on a Sunday, they typically go to a Latter-day Saint congregation and worship. And when I meet with them and get to know them, I explain, I was t- Texas for seven years as a kid, eight years in Tennessee as an adult. I got 15 years of Bible Belt in me and I love it. I went to a Bible Belt Divinity School. I know your doctrine. I love so much of what you do. Uh, I, there's a lot of holy envy here. And one of the things I envy most is your spirit when you worship. It's, oh, it's Hosanna and it's shouting. It's hands held. It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing to see people moved by the spirit in such a way. When I hear my evangelical friends pray, it's personal. They know Jesus and they love him. And they're not shy about it. It's awesome. And I ask them, How'd you feel about sacrament meeting? And they're really, they try to speak the truth in love too. And it's really loving that they're like, you guys are so kind and you're active. That's the word you guys use, right? I'm amazed at how active Latter-day Saints are in just trying to help neighbors and serve people. And you guys were so friendly. It's amazing. And the fact you guys go out on missions for so long. I mean, I did a mission trip and we did some humanitarian aid, but you guys like 18 to 24 months, hello. You guys are amazing. Oh, okay. Thank you for the love. Where's the truth? Speak the truth. In lo- you're, speaking the, the, <laughs> you're speaking in love. Now speak in truth. And they're like, okay. Um, man, your meeting was boring. <laughs> and I always laugh. I'm all, yeah, I feel that sometimes too. Uh, and it's not just for absence of electric guitars and drum sets. Okay? 
that's not just the spirit that I'm talking about in an evangelical congregation. Sometimes that's just an adrenaline rush, and it's not spirit. But behind it so often, it is real spirit that's there. And what's interesting to me as they describe, like you guys have so much great things to say. You bear your testimonies of all kinds of things. They say, sadly, some, usually it seems like you're bearing testimony of your church more than you're bearing testimony of Jesus. And that, uh, that's kind of problematic. I'm like, amen. Uh, church is means, Jesus is ends. But when they say, I don't know, it just feels like they're going up and saying the same thing that somebody else said before. Or, I mean, there's beautiful exceptions to the rule, granted. Real spirit and real feeling behind many testimonies, but there's some where it just feels like, I don't know, you guys just going through the motions and checking boxes, and I'm like, oh, you mean like we're putting wages into a bag with holes? <laughs> Thank you, Haggai. Yeah, guilty as charged sometimes. And here's the thing I get at. When I see evangelicals and Latter-day Saints, I worry sometimes that Latter-day Saints, I'll just speak to us because this is our problem, and, and most of you are in my audience and so or in my faith tradition. I think sometimes we accuse others of a lack of truth and therefore aren't willing to appreciate their abundance of spirit. And flip it around, I think sometimes we're so proud of our claims to truth that we hide behind them and use them as an excuse for our lack of spirit. My friends, these don't have to be mutually exclusive. Who's the Father seeking? People that will worship Him in spirit and in truth. There's room for both. And so there is form and feeling. And if form is truth, feeling is spirit. There are times where a place is necessary. A temple, for example, or priesthood authority. Jesus went all the way to Jordan to find John and his authority to be baptized. That's more truth. But is there spirit in the ordinance? Or are we content with the outward ordinance without the inward emotion that's driving it, that's breathing life into it. Truth is the body. Spirit is the spirit. It's the wind that's blowing. And we could use a better combination of the two. As I've said before, especially after a long study of worship in the Old Testament years ago, and seeing all the places where God ends up rejecting the form because the feeling isn't there, and condemning the outward ordinance, the work, because the spirit of grace isn't infusing it. Again, we talked about that repeatedly in the Old Testament. I call it the rejection and rehabilitation of worship. And rehabilitation is important because God still wants us to worship. He's seeking worshipers. But how? Spirit and truth. The feeling's got to be there. And as I studied that years ago and wrestled with it all through the Old Testament, this is the definition of worship I came up with. We sometimes reduce worship down to an act, something we do. But a better definition is worship is something that we do because of something that we feel about something that we believe. 
that's real worship. And if there's no belief behind the action, then your works without faith is dead. And if there's no feeling behind the belief, then there's no fire on the altar. There's no spirit in the temple. There's no grace infusing the work. And it's dead. So may we worship who and where when necessary, when when necessary, but don't confine our worship to the where's and the when's that are normal. Worship God wherever you can find his spirit and whenever you can feel it. That's everywhere and all the time. And do it in truth, but do it with spirit. I pray that we can be better at both of those. And the woman almost gets it. <laughs> She's almost there. 25 to 26. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. And when he is come, he will tell us all things. I can't tell if this is her changing the subject slightly again or if her trying to end the conversation because maybe it's feeling a little uncomfortable because he did say that salvation was of the Jews. And maybe now, though, he said it so lovingly, though. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't want to agree that he's right and I'm wrong, but he didn't do it in such a way that I'm, like, angry at him. So maybe I'll just be kind of agnostic about the whole thing and say, I don't know. I mean, one thing I do know is that Messiah will someday come. I know you guys believe in Messiah. We believe in Messiah. They call him Christ in Greek. Uh, and maybe, maybe we both ought to just leave it up to him. What do you say? And we can agree to disagree without becoming disagreeable. And I'll stay Samaritan, you stay Jewish, and we'll just wait for the Messiah to come, and he will be the one to finally sort everything out. Whatever he says. In fact, let's do that. Let's just allow him to be the independent arbiter, and whatever he says to the both of us, we'll both agree. And if he said that I'm right, you can change, and if he says you're right, then I'll change. And you picture Jesus going, oh, that's, I think that's fair. Um, but yeah, that, that Messiah, he's, he's more than on my side because I'm him. And that's what he says in the very next verse. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Mic drop. Just like in the synagogue in Nazareth. This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And they're like, what? Wondering, marveling at the gracious words. And here, there's some gracious words. In fact, the words in the Greek, when he says, I that speak unto thee am he, if you read it literally, it's more, I am he that speaks to you. Or, if you want to get even closer to the original, since in the Greek Septuagint, there's a footnote for this, by the way, if you look down at the bottom of the page, but there's in the Greek Septuagint, which is, remember, the Greek version of the Old Testament so that Greek-speaking Jews around the Hellenized Empire could still read their Bible, their Hebrew Bible. When you read Exodus chapter 3 and meet Moses in his conversation with Jehovah and asks him, who, how do I introduce you to the people of Israel that have felt forgotten by you for the last 400 years? What's your name? And remember the Lord's response? I am 
that I am. And the way that's spelled out in the Greek form of Exodus 3 is the exact same language as this passage. It's the I am. So it's not just I that speak unto thee am he. It's not just I am he that speaks to you. You could simply say, I am is speaking to you. You're looking for Messiah. You're looking for Christ. Not only do you see him, you see more than him. Look higher than the deliverer of Israel and see the God of Israel himself. Because I am that. I am. I guess that makes you Moses 2.0, my dear sister. I hope you don't feel inadequate to go let your people know that I have come for them and I still consider them my people, no matter how much time has passed or how much they have felt forgotten. I see you, Samaritan woman. I see every Samaritan. And I came for you as well. There's something profound about this. Remember how she started this? Well, someday Messiah will come and he'll sort it all out. Guess what? Today's the day. And things you thought were in the far future can be brought into the immediate now. It's like turning water into wine with no need for growth and fermentation. Today's your day. And she's blown away by this. Absolutely blown away by it. Now, the, the irony here is that the drama is interrupted immediately. We, we see the mic drop, and then it's like, remember in the synagogue, everyone's like a buzz, like, whoa, 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 isn't this Joseph's son? How is this Paul? And in this one, he's just said it to this woman. And what an, an irony. In the Gospel of John, who's the first one to get the messianic message? Clearly, from the, the lips of the Savior himself, a woman of Samaria. The lowest of the low. This is something Luke would bring, would bring up. But here's John. She's the first to find out. That's amazing. But as soon as she hears the words, what happens? Verse 27. Upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, what seekest thou? Or why talkest thou with her? No, nobody's going to bring that up. They're just, I don't know, something happened here. You see, they're not the only ones marveling. This Samaritan woman is marveling too. Like, are you kidding me? Are you? Did you just say what I think you said? My Greek's a little rusty. Uh, whoa. Messiah. Christ. Son of God. God of Israel. Savior of the world. No way. And as all of this is running through her mind... She, the silence is broken. They, in, they interrupted with the sound of footsteps and looks around and thankfully it's not Samaritans that are there to judge her but a bunch of other Jews that are kind of judging her without saying anything. Nobody wants to say it but they're marveling too. Why on earth would he speak with her? They've still got some growing up to do. Still some learning. Some lessons. But I am grateful that they at least know not to open their mouth and end up putting their foot in it in some ways, they're starting to learn that Jesus does things differently. He breaks the mold and steps out of the stereotype, but somehow when he does it, it works. 
So we're not going to ask. <laughs> we're just going to sit back and marvel. And then verse 28 through 30, the woman left her water pot. That's why I laugh and go, did Jesus ever end up getting that drink? Well, maybe now he can draw it out of the well himself. I'm sure he'll pour it out to his apostles first. But she left her water pot, water pot which makes her like whom? Who else left something that was precious to them? Something that was holding what mattered most and ended up leaving it behind, forsaking it so they could follow Jesus? This makes her, in some ways, the first female apostle. No, she's not ordained. No, she's not an apostle, technically. But she left her water pot just like the apostles left their nets. And she went her way into the city. Actually, I'd say, well, for the first time, she's not going her way. She's finally going Christ's way. He is the way, the truth, and the life, after all. But she goes her way into the city and saith to the men, Men that were probably judging her, men that would probably mock her every time that she showed up, men that were like wondering if, am I next on your list of, of potential marriage partners or non-marriage partners? And what's her words to them? Come, see. Sound like Christ's invitation in John chapter 1 to those two disciples that ended up coming and seeing? Sound like Philip's invitation to Nathaniel, who thought nothing good could possibly come of Nazareth? Fine, come, see. And she's the one inviting them. Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. She could add, and yet without condemnation for those things that he said. <sighs> he spoke the truth, but he spoke it in love. He knows everything I ever did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. She's everything in this story. She's the apostles. She's the shepherds going out and giving the good news, the, the glad tidings of great joy that shall be to all people. She's the Simeon shouting praise that the consolation of Israel has finally come. She's Anna making Jesus known to all those who come. She's the first missionary to her people. And she was the lowest of the low the first in the book of John to bear the messianic message. And it was to outsiders. That's why he came. Ah, it's so beautiful. Keep reading, though, in verse 31. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. So in the meanwhile, this is during the time that she's running back to the city and then trying to convince everyone who's willing to hear and bring them all back. So there's some time that's passing. The disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. Makes you wonder how often they have to convince him or remind him to actually <laughs> feed himself. Is he swallowed up in other things? Is he thinking of others? Yeah, probably. I have to do that to my wife all the time. Like, what would you eat today? Oh, nothing. I've been busy with, with you know, contemplating the mysteries of the universe. Like, yeah, I know, details, details. It's beneath you. Uh, but those of us that live on earth still kind of have to eat earthly stuff. So here, here's, some, here's a sandwich, okay? Please eat. And here they're doing the same to Jesus. But he says to them, and I'm sure my wife could say the same, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Here, cue another face palm from Jesus, who then says unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. You apostles are no better than Nicodemus. Or the woman at the well, for that matter. This is a common problem. 
You are all literalists, so it seems. I tell Nicodemus to be born again, and he worries about his mom. I tell the woman that I have water that is living, and she'll never thirst again. And she's like, give me some of that. Save me chores every, every noon. And now I tell you that I'm not hungry because I've been eating meat. And you're scratching your head going, Uber Eats? DoorDash? How the heck did you find food out here? And why the heck did we go all the way into the town and have to go associate with a bunch of lowly Samaritans? Oh, brethren, brethren, brethren. My meat. Uh, you are what you eat. This is what I'm made of. This is what fills me. It's to do the will of my Father in heaven. The Father of us all, including the Samaritans. I hunger and thirst after righteousness. And next week I'll tell you, blessed are those who do just that. I am the living water, so you don't have to provide much water for me. I am the bread of life, so no takeout needed. When I fast, I'm filled. When I work, I'm at rest. When I do what God commands of me, it's all that I need. It's beautiful what Jesus is conveying here to apostles that are going to start going hungry more and more themselves. And will need to trust in the meat that only God can provide them, which comes when they do his will. So he says to them in verse 35, Right on the heels of this thought of food and where is it coming from. And, oh, let's talk about harvest for a second, shall we? He says, say not ye, there are yet four months and then cometh harvest. In other words, don't be beholden to earthly times and harvest cycles. At this time of year, yes, harvest is still far off. But don't say that. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. <laughs> Regular cycles don't apply. Water can turn to wine in an instant. More importantly, a seemingly immoral woman can become the first Samaritan sister missionary in a moment. That's all it takes. Is someone to open their eyes and step out of darkness into the light. That's all it takes. Repentance and forgiveness. Well, repentance might take you a while. You might wade through your afflictions, like Alma the Younger said, but you will be snatched. That's his other word. And that happens in an instant. Forgiveness can come. I would say overnight, but that night takes, takes too long. My mercies are new every morning. You don't even have to wait till sunrise because the sun has risen and I'm here. So trust me and look around. It's harvest time now. The field is white, and guess what? The godly grain is on its way. It's harvesting itself as we speak. And by the end of this conversation, <laughs> the converts come running, having heard from this Samaritan sister missionary that there's a man that's more than a Jew, more than a prophet. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. And he's come to us. The Jewish Messiah coming to the Samaritans. Whoa, what in the world is this? Well, come and see. I will say something else here as well in terms of what Jesus says about this harvest time and the, the, the fields being white already to harvest. Look at what the Savior says next, 36 through 38. He that reapeth receiveth wages 
I don't think of normal wages. Please don't take that one literally. I'm not going to be able to pay you. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Uh, but I will bless you in incredible ways if you'll reap with me. And these apostles are about to really start reaping. So he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal. How's that for tree of life? You get to take it with you. That both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true. One soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon ye bestowed no labor. Other men labored and ye are entered into their labors. Now there's a lot going on here. Uh, you reap what you sow. That's the law of the harvest. But taken up a notch with the law of grace and mercy added in, you reap things you didn't sow in a good way. Uh, you'll see this in the letters of Paul when he talks about, oh yeah, I planted and Apollos watered. Who cares? It's God that gives the increase. So don't take any credit. John the Baptist would give you a loud amen on that. But this idea of sowers and reapers rejoicing together because they had the same goal in mind. Who cares what part of the process you were a part of? Rejoicing God. He was the only one around for the whole process. So he's the only one that gets, deserves all the credit. But notice what else he says in their specific situation, which is ironic because he's with Samaritans. He says, one has sown and another has reaped. And you're reaping what you didn't sow. You're reaping someone else's labor. And you're just stepping into that. And you could picture them going, in Samaria? Who's been reaping here? Jews, like, turn a blind eye here and have for the last, like, six, seven hundred years. Well, maybe it's Samaritans doing Samaritan things. And Samaritans that, even if they don't know fully, they know a lot. And they have planted incredible seeds that are about to bear harvest. If salvation's of the Jews, we might have to add the finishing touches. We might have to invite, invite them down to the proper place there in Jerusalem. We might have to introduce them to those with proper authority, like John. Or like me, I baptize too, though not as much. Like you, since I gave you, gave you the authority and you're baptizing more than I am. But do not underappreciate. Especially, do not look down upon or despise. The truths that these Samaritans already know from Samaritan religion. That's closer to the truth than you care to admit. They still hold to the Torah. They've got their own temple. They have a Samaritan Passover. They're trying. And to my fellow Latter-day Saints, can we do a better job of honoring those that have sown, planted, worked, nourished, tried for centuries before the fullness of the gospel ever came during the time of harvest? For every Catholic I taught on the mission field, I'm grateful for their Catholicism. For every evangelical with whom I do interfaith dialogue, bless you for your evangelical Christianity. For Muslim friends and Hindu friends, Jewish friends, and yes, I have names and faces I can attach to all of those faith groups, to atheist friends, to former Latter-day Saints that are now attacking the church and even attacking me personally. I'm grateful for the seed that's been planted 
and that is growing in goodness in you. And I hope that as a people we can be more inclusive, more open, that we can be good Jews recognizing that there are good Samaritans, if that makes sense. May we be more like Jesus in all of this and do more to honor the previous beliefs of converts. And to you converts, please know that you can hold to and appreciate every truth that prepared you for the fullness of the gospel. It doesn't have to be a clean break and nothing now that I have everything. No, there was light and truth and goodness all along the way. Just great. Just praise God for giving the increase when harvest time finally came. Well, harvest time is here for them. Verse 39 and 40, many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman. That was the first step. She which testified, he told me all that ever I did. I and mean, that was enough to wake some of them up. Like, what, really? Seriously? This guy knew all that stuff about you, though you've never met him? Whoa, he's got to be more than a Jew. He's got to be more than a prophet. Let's go meet him ourselves. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them. Remember, everybody wants Jesus to stay. We should too. And sure enough, in this case, he does stay. He abode there two days. Now, so far, this is just belief in a second-hand witness. But it's enough for starters. There's belief here. There's exercising a particle of faith. And faith precedes the miracle that Jesus comes and stays with them. And now, verse 41 and 42, many more believe because of his own word. And they said unto the woman, Now we believe not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves. And know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world, including the parts of the world that belong to Samaritans. Isn't that amazing? We started with a, an indirect testimony and a dependent testimony. But then they ended with a direct testimony and an independent testimony. Beautiful reversals there. At what point will we be able to say something similar? For Joseph, it came on the heels of the first vision. Remember when he goes back and he says to his mom, I have learned for myself. Every parent dreams of their children saying that as they embrace the truth independently and directly. And so you young people, when will the day come where you can say to your parents, we, now we believe, not because of thy saying, not because of all those wonderful family home evening lessons or, or family scripture study sessions or times that we went to church or times that you were just bearing your testimony to us in any way that you could, hoping that we would come to understand. I believed you. You're good people. But now I don't have to believe you. I can believe me. Because now I have heard him myself. And in some ways, mom, dad, you underestimated him. If you see all the titles given to Jesus throughout this story, the first one was Jew, second was prophet, third was Messiah or Christ. Now these people, what do they add? The fourth and final one, Savior of the world. Not just a mortal Messiah to free us from Rome. This is the Son of God here to free us from sin. This is the Savior of the world. That is an expansive identity on the part of Christ. And the Samaritans get it. Verse 43 to 45, then, the story shifts. Those two days have passed. After two days he departed thence and went into Galilee, 
It's where he'd been headed all along. He just took the shortcut that ended up being, <laughs> it might cost us two extra days to go around. I'd rather spend those two days helping people rather than avoiding them. <laughs> so he stays. For Jesus himself testified, as they head to Galilee, that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Maybe that's another reason he went to the Samaritans first to declare this, as far as John is concerned. And that's the same thing that we saw back in the synagogue of Nazareth, right? No man is prophet in his own country. But then the verse goes on. Then when he was come into Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went unto the feast. Now, this could either be good news or bad news. Is this an exception to the rule that prophets have no honor in their own country? Because now he's back at Galilee, his own country, and the Galileans are receiving him. Oh, well, thank you for that. Or is it, oh, no, yeah, we were down in Jerusalem. We were down at the feast. We saw some of the things you did down there. Is, so was it faith preceding the miracle or miracle preceding faith, in which case it's not really faith, it's just acknowledgement? Hard to tell here. But I guess that leaves us with the choice of which example will we follow. Will we give Christ the honor due him? even if sometimes it feels like we're part of his country. Well, there were those there that did have faith in him for the right reasons. Maybe Jesus himself is either unsure or pretending to be unsure and allowing people to prove it to themselves and to him because of the story that then follows. And what ends up happening here, and this takes us to the, the end of chapter 4 and the end of our lesson for this week. Starting in verse 46... Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. We're getting full circle here. Was it faith or chicken and egg? Was it faith or was it miracle that, that is engendering things? Well, let's see. There was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea unto Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now, we don't know much about this person other than the fact he's a nobleman, which puts him on a higher level, makes you wonder, does he feel entitled to Jesus' help? Uh, we'll see this when we, this is really similar to the story of the centurion that has a servant that needs to be healed. Uh, and we'll see that in a couple of weeks. Uh, in this case, and, and there's some interesting differences there, but here is this nobleman is a person in authority. People look up to him. Is he calling the shots? Is he just kind of, you know, butler? Jesus, I hear you can do these kinds of things. So I hope you're, uh, you better be a doctor that makes house calls because I need you to come to my house and do this. Is that what's happening here? Used to calling the shots, used to having his orders obeyed. I don't know, but let's see how Jesus responds. Verse 48 and 49, Jesus said unto him, except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. Now, Hmm, is Jesus calling him out there for his lack of faith? Is he saying, insinuating, the only reason you believe is because you've seen things, or the only reason you will believe is if you see this? Is that what you're, are you a sign seeker? Is that why you're calling me? I think Jesus is, is probing the nobleman's motives. Are you noble only temporally above the people, or are you noble spiritually? Which one are you? And notice the nobleman's response. He saith unto him, Sir, come down ere my child die. Sir, that title of respect would suggest that he's not calling shots and making demands. 
He's begging him. And here he does it again. Come down ere my child die. It's interesting because he doesn't even respond to what Jesus said. If this is some kind of test, the man passes it. It's like, is that what you're doing? You just want demanding signs? Otherwise you won't believe? And you picture the man here basically saying without saying it. That's not why I'm asking. I'm not not asking you to prove yourself. As far as I'm concerned, you're already proven. I'm asking you to heal my son. That's it. We'll see later a Lord I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Here it simply seems to be, Lord I believe, please heal my boy. And Jesus does. Verse 50, Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. You've passed the test. I will honor your faith. In fact, I don't even need to come to do it. Because if God's influence is spiritual and therefore non-sight specific, let's build on what I just taught the Samaritan woman. The healing can happen no matter where I am and no matter where your son is. So trust. And the man does. The man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him. Sight unseen. And he went his way, which is yet more evidence of the nobleman's faith. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Can you picture how excited they'd be? And they're rushing after their master to find him and give him the good news. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. It's like, of course, (laughs) I'm not that surprised. But I'm curious, what time did my son start to feel better? And they said unto him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And then verse 53 and 54, our journey ends. So the father knew that it was at the same hour, in the which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth. And himself believed, he had been for a long time, and his whole house. And then John, our narrator, gives us this final statement. This is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. Once again, we have an example of Something far beyond isolated belief. This is shared conversion. This is the Samaritan woman going and gathering the people of the city. This is this man and his servants and his household. Evidently, it wasn't just his son that was sick. He was physically. The rest were spiritually. But now everyone's better because of a noble man's faith. I pray that we can be noble in those ways that we can trust God, even before the evidence comes to replace faith with perfect knowledge. I pray that we'll be ready for the wedding when it comes on the third day, that we'll accept the sacramental wine that Jesus offers us. In this case, it's wine that's been turned back to water, but it's living water. And it springs up within us unto everlasting life. He is that life. And if you feel that your life has carried you too far away from his, then please let him condescend to come to you, to bear you up. And may we, however long or short it takes, see in Jesus far more than some wandering Jew far more than some provincial prophet. 
even more than a Messiah, I testify that he is the Savior of the world. <laughs> Whatever patch of the planet you occupy, Jesus has come for you.